listening to the bomb hole. Bomb hole podcast. It's going to be very hot. It's going to be very uncomfortable for everybody. <laughs> the bomb going to slide down in big hills. You know what I mean? On a big, nice, burgundy snowboard. Okay. Here we go again. We're back at the bomb hole, which is presented by Pub Beer. Today we have a big one, episode 100. But first things first, to my right, we have guest host T-Bird. T-Bird, how are we doing today? I got to try it. So good, Whoa. my dog. Whoa, dog. <laughs> <laughs> I had to Careful. do it. Easy. Careful, Careful. bro. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do it. I've heard it 99 times. Well, let's just hear, hear how it comes right, in, right out of the horse's mouth here. So uh, to my left, we have... E Stone. Now, uh, Buds, how are we feeling today? So good, my dog. <laughs> That's a master class right that there. Is. That's how that it's is. done. You did all right. Uh, oh, thanks, buddy. Yeah, this is long-awaited, <laughs> most anticipated. Uh, Stony Buds, E Stone, call him what you will. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Buds, which is nobody, because if you've ever watched one of these podcasts, you are, uh, legendary photographer before being a photographer, snowboarder, Legendary entrepreneur started Tech Nine bindings, boards, and outerwear, which shaped an entire generation of snowboards, which we're actually wearing in honor of Buds. For those of you guys listening that can't see, we are wearing some Tech Nine gear, me and T Bird. Um, so, first things first, Buds, we'd like to get into just some street knowledge. Um, you know, you've spent a lot of time in the streets shooting photos of snowboarders. Now, what's a perim? The perim. Yes, a perim. What's you want to get into the perim. Yeah, let's start with the We're perim. Start with the perim. <laughs> uh, perim is short for perimeter. When you get up onto a uh, street spot, you don't know where you're going to shoot. You don't know uh, your angles. Everyone's grabbing shovels, and uh, <laughs> it's cold as shit out there. And uh, Cole Taylor and I, FODT, we started coining the phrase perim and we would kind of do 360 around the spot and then you even take it a little bit further you're kind of at a street spot and you know you want to shoot more later in the day so you even expand your perim and you kind of look for other spots in the general area what would you say mileage wise longest <laughs> longest perim walk that's it, ever gone down sometimes you jump in the car and get a coffee <laughs> And this is probably still in peak shoveling time. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely in. Yeah. It's right at the uh, time where you shoveled a little bit, but it's like, all right, we gotta. What are we gonna do to uh, check out the rest of? And for real though, it does it does help because you do find extra spots, <laughs> and a lot of times things have. Uh, Great things have happened because right around the corner there could be an A A plus spot that you shoot next. And I, I will say you gave me that advice long ago. Perim walk, yeah. go for the perim walk, and I've actually found good angles doing that. Well, yeah, you do because just like a lot of times you're in the back country, you don't have the opportunity to do that. You're kind of stuck with the angle you have in the street. You really can come up with a creative angle and maybe even find yourself on top of a building that you wouldn't have even if you just start shooting. All of a sudden, you're not going to have all the angles dialed. So it is very helpful as a as a media person. We're uh, cracking the code for the media here. A little uh, industry but tips. But it's also a little trick to uh, maybe grab a coffee as well and, <laughs> and go to the bathroom. And uh, It's always convenient when the there. rest of the crew is in peak shovel. Absolutely. But, you know, the, the so, guy riding, you owe it to him to uh, walk the perim and find true. the best angle because he's about to put his life on the line. Well said, Buds. Well, we're getting into <laughs> the story of Stony Buds here. Uh, we're going to get into a banter marathon, a banter journey, if you will. This is going to be majestic. So first things first, in the story of Buds, uh, tell us about your childhood. 
you know? childhood. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. I uh, was born in Jersey. Little people, a lot of people don't know that. Um, only lived there for like a couple, two, three days. Enough to be in the hospital. And then uh, I don't even know what town, actually. It just says on my passport, Jersey. And then I uh, lived in Buffalo, New York for a little while, and then settled in the CT for my younger years, Connecticut, and uh, lived there till about seventh grade, I think, when my parents got divorced. And I kind of started snowboarding at that time, but then went on to Vermont for my for- formative years, I'd say. So I kind of like East Coast juggernaut all over the place. Mm-hmm. What was the jumping around like attributed to? Was it parents' work or... You know, I don't even know in the early days because I was so young. But uh, when we lived in Connecticut, we were, you know, I think my dad, he was like a sales rep and he was doing pretty well. But my parents pretty much hated each other. They they fought like crazy. So when my brother graduated high school, um, my parents were going to split and my mom grew up in Vermont. So that pulled us back to uh, where she grew up, was to Vermont. So we went with her, my sister and I. Nice. So at, w- at what point in this did you did you find snowboarding? Dude, I found snowboarding actually pretty early in Connecticut. Um, when I was young, my dad had a skiing at like two, and uh, which was pretty rad. I, I Kind of my fondest memories are of like being at ski mountains. We'd always go on these uh, vacations to Vermont, and uh, it was, I, I remember like lodge smells of like food and being at Killington and the gondola and that outer limits with all the huge moguls like just crazy those are like the best memories i think of my youth but i remember seeing a snowboarder at mount snow i think in about like 86 or something so i was pretty young maybe 11 years old and uh from that moment on i wanted to try it my dad had bought us fresh skis so he was not down but i kept throwing my poles off the lift (laughs) he'd buy me a new set throw them off the lift just be like i want to snowboard you buy me a new set throw them off the lift and finally for christmas they got me a snowboard and uh, and a lesson, and then I never went back to skiing, obviously. Do you remember the setup? Do I do. It was uh, Burton Elite 140, and uh, they were sick. They were, uh, I mean, it was the first, I mean, they're not sick compared to boards now, but back then it was like the coolest thing I had ever gotten, I would say. Um, they were blue, and we'll maybe put one on the screen. I'll dig up a photo, but they're, they were awesome. And then so you, you started snowboarding. You're, you're honing your skills, and you're just probably going down the mountain. At what point were you like, oh, this is what I do, like what I want to do. Maybe I'm going to compete. Maybe I'm going to get further into it. I would say that happened. It was kind of more of a vacation thing until I uh, got a little bit older. And then I think when I moved to Vermont, snowboarding was just, it was there. You're like in the scene. And so when I moved to Vermont, I really was able to snowboard all the time, and that's when it kind of just became – more less of a hobby and more of a damn i want to do this did you have any like early snowboard videos that shaped you you know back then the videos are huge was there one you know that stuck out oh for sure when i was young we used there used to be the shop the boarding house that andy coglin ran he was a burton pro back then the dog the dog andy the dog coglin and it was sick you could go into his shop and there'd always be people hanging out like pros and whatnot but he'd have all the videos and he'd let kids take them home for the weekend and uh, the the first one that kind of comes to mind is the Burton movie Chill. Yes, <laughs> where Brushy has that rap in it. Yeah. It was, when I saw Brushy rapping, I was I was sold. He was like, he was my favorite dude from then on. But as I got older, Hard Hungry and the Homeless was the one that like really, really shaped me. I'd say. But there was so many like kind of wild movies out at that time. 
But uh, those two definitely stand. It's kind of cool. Pocahontas, that you- too, that, that Mount Hood movie. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> it's kind of cool that you had that little breeding ground that was Andy Coughlin's shop. Not a lot of kids growing up snowboarding had that, you know? Yeah, true. Yeah. We also had the B-side right down the street, and George Cavalla worked there, who's uh, gone on. He works at 686 now, but he went on to be a photo editor yep. at Snowboarder and uh, long career. But, yeah, I used to go in shoot the shit with him at the B-side, and they kind of carried all the stuff that wasn't Burton. And then you'd go to the dog shop, and it'd be all Burton stuff, plus some of his homies' homies gear. So you could really see, like, all the different kinds of snowboards that were out there at the time, which was rad. And it also kind of made me, when I was young, I was always getting Burton stuff, you know, and always uh, we'd go dig in the Burton dumpster and find boards that are actually seconds that you could take and ride. But once I saw the B-side offer all these other brands, I kind of started... Like, I grabbed an Avalanche kick one year, um, a Nitro gyrator. Is that what it was? No, it was a K2 gyrator. There was a sick Nitro board, too, a Jeff Davis Pro model, I think. But, uh, yeah, so it was cool to see the other stuff that wasn't Burton because Vermont was such a Burton scene. Now, uh, a staple in uh, Vermont is Green Mountain Series. A lot of people have came up through Green Mountain Series. Did you? Uh, were you chucking roast out there, buds? Dude, I was definitely... When I discovered the Green Mountain Series, that became like every weekend you drive to a new spot. We kind of had a crew of people from my school, and we would drive, and then you'd meet all the other people from the east that were also in that scene. And Shane Charlebois was actually there, which was crazy. He was there with uh, Jamil Khan, rest in peace, and uh, his buddy Blair, but they were like another crew. So every time you'd go there, you'd just see these different crews, and it was like your time to see what other people were doing. And uh, I wasn't super competitive. I never, like, did super good in the pipe. But I went every weekend, and it was more about the, the fun and the scene and shredding the pipe and hiking the pipe. And, and uh, man, it was the best. The, the Green Mountain Series was yeah, dope. <clears throat> kind of seemed like uh, back then it was like what happened after the contest was cooler than what happened during the contest. Uh, at first, I was a little young for what happened after because we were, like, I might have at first been like, I don't know, like, how old are you in like eighth grade, you know, ninth grade? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I was pretty young for or what yeah. happened after. But then as I got older, yeah, for sure. But we're seeing guys like Seth Neary and Seth Miller who were kind of juggernauts in the East, the Rabines and Jason Evans, people that never really left the East. But for the time at the East, they were like the best dudes there. So it was pretty cool to, to see them. I think who else? Uh, Ian Sparrow, I think he went on to do good things he was he was in the green mountain series back then well uh also at this time i heard rumor that you maybe were uh the founder of a snowboard club i, I was <laughs> <laughs> that was actually what pretty, was it was it called buds's uh buds's club <laughs> i wasn't buds at this time <laughs> i was just ethan um it was sick we started a snowboard club because brighton or not brighton sorry utah mountain there bolton valley was our local mountain and it had a night riding. So you were able to go there kind of if, – if you had a ride, you were able to go there like every day of the week maybe or at least twice a week at night and then on the weekend. So you could kind of up how much you were riding. So what we needed was a bus to use, but we had to have a snowboard club. So we had to raise money. So we went around – me and my friends went around the town and said we were raising money to uh, have a ski team. And we needed to buy we needed to buy gates and like the ski gates, and they gave us all this money, <laughs> and we used that money to uh, pay to rent a bus from the school, and they let it be an official club. But we needed someone to drive the bus, and so we were able to get one of our older buddies, who was 
had no, but he was pretty much like right out of high school <laughs> to be able to drive the bus. And somebody's parents signed off on it, but it was basically like a fake snowboard club just to get us up there. And we were able to use one of the short buses to get the whole crew up there. That's a young entrepreneur right there. Yeah, it was sharpening, sharpening his teeth is what's happening. Got us up that. to Brighton like two nights a week on the on the weekdays until <laughs> I, I think we got caught and we got in a little trouble, but they took the bus away. But that sounds like young young buds making moves. Yeah, early we were making moves. Yeah, anything to be riding, you know, anything mm-hmm. to get up on the mountain. Now I was told that you uh, graduated maybe early or something like I that. I did. Right? I graduated a half year early. And the reason was is I just wanted to get snowboarding. I wanted to uh, – the second I kind of saw Hard Hungry and the Homeless and got, a, got a, a taste of what snowboard culture was like, I was like, I got to get out of here. And I graduated half year early so I could uh, move west. Beautiful. Now, along those lines, uh, I know that you kind of at one point had to tell your mom, like, hey, mom, I'm, I'm not going to go to college. Yeah, she had gotten me all the uh, – all the college uh, pamphlets, let's say, like all these different schools. And she even went out of her way to find ones that were in mountain towns. Like there's that one in Colorado and um, that's like right. The the Leadville one? Yeah, that Leadville one. Yeah. Like they had just everything outlined. And I was working at Kitchens at the time too. So they had like even some culinary schools lined up, just like anything to get me in there. And when I told her that I wasn't going to go, she straight up cried, told me that I would uh, – basically when i turned 40 i would be regretting this and be the worst move i ever made so uh thanks mom for (laughs) (laughs) well give your mom an air because this was correct me if i'm wrong this was back when you know being a professional snowboarder wasn't really like an option it wasn't a career path for it wasn't a career yeah there was like in town you'd see the burton team they'd all come through but they were all kids you know they were with dyed hair and and of course, like at one point, I dyed my hair too to to kind of look like them. But yeah, they were all kids. There was no career. I don't think they were making money at the time. Yep. Now I have to ask because I, you've always said we've been on so many trips, and I've seen you chef up. You're nice. You're nice with with the uh, the skillet. We'll say the skillet. The kid's nice with the skillet. Now I know that you've always said like when we're on trips, like I was almost a I was almost a chef, or like I was going to be a chef. That was going to be my thing. Now hypothetically, like. What do you think, let's say you went down that rabbit hole versus snowboarding, what do you think, are you happy with how it panned out? How do you think your life would have panned out? Man, I think it would have been pretty bad. I started uh, dishwashing at like, I think like 15 before you even legally could work. And I did that to earn money to snowboard because my mom couldn't really afford uh, snowboarding stuff because it's so expensive even back then. But uh, so I kind of just always had a kitchen job. And then I worked my way up to a cooking job after dishwashing and uh, you kind of just see these head chefs roll through. Every one of them seemed like they would go insane at one point or another. They were always doing tons of cocaine in the in the cooler. And uh, they just seemed like the worst people after they kind of went insane after working there so long. And I think uh, if I hadn't chosen the path of snowboarding, I definitely would have been probably in the same kitchen that I worked at and, and been stuck in Vermont and not have traveled and you know there's nothing wrong with the people that end up doing that and i'm sure there's plenty of head chefs that don't end up like that but my experience said that they're kind of wild people and just that there's always the constant order coming in like it's just the same thing day in day out making the same food and uh i think it just would have not ended out so good for me i would be still in colchester vermont probably yeah the, the culinary industry is such a grind until you make it to the level where you can kind of chill and be that executive chef. Yeah. But working your way up to that is a big time grind. Yeah. It's and these, gnarly. 
these guys that I saw, because if you're not at like a really high-end restaurant, it's kind of a bad scene, it seems like. Well, there's another there's another kind of underlying topic of this too because I think about all right, buds, you didn't you didn't go to college, right? Which is in our society, that's kind of like is somebody smart? Well, what school did they go to? You know, that's that's yeah. kind of like how we determine somebody's intelligence. But where you've shined is street smarts. You're like you go in, you know, you're going on a street trip. Buds is like all of a sudden you go into Seven Eleven. Buds is like best friends with the the guy outside. He's talking to some guy outside his car, and and they're they're fucking buddies for life immediately. And there's something to be said with like that that street smarts versus book smarts. And you have the street smarts. Appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> has, has, were you like that as a kid? Like, has that always come naturally to you, connecting with people? Because you have a natural gift uh, at doing that. Yeah, you know, I never really thought about it. You know, I think when I was when you have to move at, in seventh grade to a new school and make all new friends, I think you have to be a little bit outgoing or else you're not going to make good friends. So I think uh, maybe that had something to do with it, but it must just be personality trait, I guess, too. Like I always just love hearing people's stories and hearing about them. Everyone has something interesting to tell if you give them a chance. And if you give them a chance, they kind of really opens them up, too. And all of a sudden they're doing like they're going to be your homie and, and it's going to be a better scenario, you know. If you're if you're a dick to somebody, you're going to get that right back at you, you know. Would you attribute your personality more to your mom or your dad? Who are you more like or neither? Unfortunately, my dad, I would say. <laughs> 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 but there's something also to be said, too, because when you look at your personality trait, like treating this, the what you do is you treat this the person at 7-Eleven that is fucking homeless the same as a Fortune 500 company owner, right? And and that's actually not a, a common trait. Usually people treat everybody differently according to their social statuses. But you're, the thing I admire so much about you is just you treat everybody the same. And and does that come naturally? Is just who you are? I just feel like at the human level, what isn't the same about them? You know, like what's to say that that guy's, who, who knows what his story is, what why that guy's working at the 7-Eleven? compared to the kid who maybe his dad set him up with a bunch of money to go to this great school. And, you know, who knows if that guy's a good guy, maybe this guy's a better guy. And so treating them the same it's just, on the human level, they are the same. What's to say they're different, I guess, is how I look at it. All right, buds. I think this is a good time to transition into a guest question from Ali Goulet. Ah. Here we go. What's good, my dogs and the whole bomb hole family? Stony Buds, I got, like, a couple quick questions slash demands of you um why don't you tell the people your full real name and also i would love to hear you describe what the e-roll is and lastly if you could sort of break down the vibe of the sunridge apartment scene when we'd all first moved to that area to Vale. Be well, my men and ladies out there. Bye. Three-parter. Three-part. Heavy three-part question three-parter. From, from Ali. So uh, first one, my full name is Ethan Stone Fortier. And a lot of people don't know Fortier is my last name. They think I even get checks that say Stone. And uh, But, yeah, my middle name is Stone. It's not because I was a stoner. I think that's uh, <laughs> great-grandfather on my mom's side. Was Their last name was Stone. And, uh, yeah, so Ethan Stone Fortier. And then what was the next one? The E-roll? What, <laughs> what is the E-roll? What is the E-roll? The E-roll, uh, whenever, 
sometimes or off a kicker, it's basically like a, uh, it's almost like a barrel roll, the late 180. And uh, I didn't realize until doing this podcast, the reason why my body did these is because instead of like squatting and spinning backside, tucking, I would tuck too much, like almost a McTwist. Yeah. And so I would go off a giant booter and end up just naturally doing that, probably because of my body shape. And uh, and I, I could land them like no problem. And uh, they called them the E-roll. So it's kind of like a Misty. But yeah, but more, it's different. More it's, like yeah. human kickflip late. Yeah, exactly. You're, yeah. And you're spinning backside. Yeah. What's so, the grab? Where are we grabbing? Uh, just probably right in between the bindings, backhand. Gotcha. We call that indie. I believe. Yeah, we call that indie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> after, after all these Olympic, watching the Olympics. <laughs> Smooth spin. I think there was two spins with a grab. <laughs> She, yeah, he did something <laughs> off of that. I think Definitely that was something. a trick. That was a trick. Uh, all right, and then the last question. So we're gonna let's oh, preface Sunridge. this because we we can back it up and talk about your migration. But expo- answer the maybe answer the question. Yeah. So first Sunridge either. Apartments was our, our first apartments in Avon, Colorado, which is right outside of Vail, and uh, we had uh, one of your standard two bedroom spots, pretty small. I mean, it was smaller than, like, these two rooms almost. Like, I'd say if we, uh, I don't know the square footage, but it was your basic uh, family room, kitchen, two bedrooms, nine people in there. Um, I had, in one bedroom, there was a king-size bed, which I shared with Ali for a whole season <laughs> with our other buddy, Maddie L, but a little platform at the feet. So he was at our feet. So three of us in that room, and uh, it made it affordable for us. You know, I was like, God, I don't even know what the rent was. It was less than 100 a person, I would say. Um, Avon and Vale is not cheap, you know, mm-hmm. so it's kind of how you got to live out there. But yeah, that was, that was Timber Ridge. Good times though. All he had his DJ set up in the closet too. So it was kind of <laughs> perfect <laughs> in the closet of that bedroom we were living in. Yeah. So we'd end up packing just people in that room and in the closet. It was like a walk-in closet in the master, you know, so just enough room for the DJ kit and a bunch of people. Legendary. Good times. Now. I got to talk about the fact, because we kind of skipped over, you're living on the East Coast. How do you get from the East Coast to Colorado? What does that look like? I did the standard uh, go to Mount Hood summer camp, like everybody uh, wants to do when they're a young kid. Once you find out about Mount Hood, I don't even know how I found out about it, probably from the dog, Coglin. Um, And it's funny, before I went out to Mount Hood, I was car surfing. And uh, the homie went way too fast. You know when you ride on top of a car? Oh, actually surfing a car. A car, yeah. Sounds dangerous as hell. Yeah, he hit the brakes because I told him to slow down, and he hit the brakes too fast, and I flew off and broke both my wrists. So I went out to Mount Hood with two broken wrists, and uh, which sucked, but it was still like the best time of my life, which made me be like, man, I got to move west. Like, <laughs> I got to be a part of this, you know? So eventually uh, we... I kind of decided, yeah, kitchen life, if I chose that route, it was going to be a rough scene for me. So I got to gotta get out of there. And a lot of my friends on the East that were snowboarders were kind of hesitant. They were just more like that East Coast attitude, like, oh, the East is the best. You can't, can't get off of there. And uh, so a lot of them stayed back. I'd met Ali just jibbing like a picnic table bench or something at a Smuggler's Notch or one of those mountains. And he was down. So we were like, all right, let's make a plan. So we just... Uh, Got in our cars and headed west with I think like I, I think a thousand dollars in my pocket, um, which I had earned working in kitchens and just made the move. Um, we got out there 
and we wanted to move to Brackenridge. That was kind of the goal because in Hard Hungry and the Homeless and all that, that's where the scene was. It was obvious. Like, it seemed like you could film a whole video part there. And uh, so we get out to Breckenridge, and there's Ali went a little bit before me. Um, no housing, like anywhere. Every single house was booked. So we ended up being like, well, the closest place we can be then is Vail. So uh, we ended up in Avon, which is even farther than Vail. But it turned out all the other homies that used to live in Breck, like all the pro snowboarders, couldn't get a place either. So they all moved to Vail at the same season, like guys like J2 and Adam Merriman, Stevie Alters. Cody Dresser, like all the all the pros at the time. So it turned out to be like the next pilgrimage, I guess, from Breck all the way over. Tarquin Robbins was another homie. Um, so, yeah, so we were kind of in the right place without even knowing it. We were really bummed that we had to move there at first. But then uh, all of a sudden you get there, and it's a very small town. You're, like, hanging out at one of the skate spots, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, shit, all these homies are here. So uh, it was the right move, I guess. And we had a good crew. My stepbrother moved out there with me, Ali, and just a bunch of homies. And you guys were kind of like the first, some of the first East Coasters to do that. Now it's so common for an East Coaster to be like, yeah, I'm not going to college. I'm going to move to Mammoth or I'm going to move to Utah or Colorado, whatever it is. That it wasn't, that wasn't like a standard operating procedure back then, right? Yeah, I don't think so. I didn't really, I mean, out of like all the people in the East that I knew, it was only like our four or five of us that we could get to go over there, I guess. And then once we got out there, we would tell people how rad it was and more people would start coming. But, yeah, it was pretty uh, – not a lot of people were doing it. But it seemed – it was pretty obvious, and you watch the videos. Like, it's better than – I mean, the East Coast was rad, and I have a lot of pride for the East, but it was obvious the scene was out West. Now, I have to ask, thinking about your childhood, I'm going to go deep philosophical, uh, deep dive on him. But go, growing up as a kid who moved around a lot, you were kind of in a lot of different places, probably had a lot of, like, fragmented friend groups. When you – when you found snowboarding, were you like, these are my people? Yeah. That was one of the sickest things about snowboarding is you would see another one, and it was like instantly your homie. Like, without even having to talk much, it was just instantly like you'd lock eyes and be like sick and ride the chairlifts with them, and there were so few snowboarders, you were just friends fast, you know? So for sure, I think you're right. Well, I think that, uh, you know, all this talk about Bud snowboarding, we're going to need to see some evidence of you ha. boarding. I don't know if so it exists. I dug, it we does. dug deep on the internet. Shane Charlebluss sent me this first clip, and this is a log jib from 411. Oh, used to love the lumber. Yeah. <laughs> lumber God. Yeah. Back in, uh, in Beaver Creek, man, Vale, man, lumber was just everywhere, and definitely something I uh, excelled at, I guess you Dude, would say. Dude, it still is. Some County is it's like still there, the right? rainbow log capital of the yeah, world. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why it only forms really there. You know, it's such a crazy thing. We also have a real treat here, and this is uh, basically, I think the video is called the Novak Theory. Oh, all right. And we have basically this close one. to, it's 53 seconds of Bud's boarding. Right Whoa. Here. So, yep. I didn't Bud's, choose the song, obviously. Narrate, narrate what's happening to the people. That's, uh, looks, all I see is a tree so far. <laughs> All right, that's Vail Pass. Well, right? that was big, dude. <laughs> dude. That's what we said. Wow. Yeah, this back is dope, God dude. back then, dude. Yeah, I guess so, dude. <laughs> nice I have no memory of any of this. <laughs> Did you see that wedding cake pillow stack yeah, that Stone dude. just pointed it down? some big mountain. I, would, I obviously didn't hike up there. I wonder how I even got up there. <laughs> just kidding. Dude, this was that Vail Pass. That was a pretty dope, dope uh, hip sash right there. 
or QP session. Dude, you're going big mountain on that ass. Yeah, I guess I was a big, a bit of a big mountain Larry back then. <laughs> Dude, look at this Cooley King right here. Yeah, I, I have no memory of this video part either. This is dope. <laughs> Coolar God. Bit of a Coolar King scenario going on. Yeah, to this knows? day, that's still called the Stony Coolar. Yeah, that's, a, that's <laughs> an actual story. First Descent. They yeah, call that Buds' Playground of Punishment, I believe, as well. I don't know if there's some camera magic going on there, but Who's, some of those look kind of big. <laughs> Who's your best guess of running cam on those? Kelly Flynn made the Novak theory. I don't know where he... No one knows where he's at, what's going on with him. Might have, like, disappeared to Japan or something. We we have one last morsel of Ethan Stone Fortier footage here. And uh, Stevens dug this up, and I don't know what it's from. Oh, this is Hollywood, dog. Yeah, Hollywood. He goes back 180, and then he serves up a cab seven. That's Yo. right. Yep. It's kind of off kilter. Oh, that's why it's because it's filmed with his phone, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that was a whole, there was a whole video part there to that whole song. Now, yep. this was before E-Stone, right? You uh, were Ethan back then? I was, my some of my homies called me Stone, but I was, yeah, just Ethan back then. But some of my uh, good homies called me Stone, I guess it kind of started. What boards were you riding? Were you getting boards from anyone at that time? I think in that Hollywood, Hollywood one, I was on Original Sin, it looked like. I was sponsored by them for a little bit. Um, then I was sponsored by Scott for a little bit. Kevin Zacker was a team manager, photographer, and he uh, hooked us up, which was do- like he got Blotto and I on there, which was pretty dope. Um, I was on six eight six for a long time, which was sick. Um, Mike West had Blotto and I on it. Blotto and I had like a interview together in Strength Magazine that was dope. I can probably find some of those photos and uh, we'll throw them up on the screen. But uh, yeah, so we were sponsored. A little bit of money coming in. Low, very low level pro kids cashing checks, snapping necks, cashing small checks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it was enough enough to uh, to get me cruising around. What was sick is Tarquin um, and I became pretty good homies, and he would just throw me in the back of his car. Would like I don't even really letting me decide if I was going to go or not. He just put me in his car, all hungover. He didn't drink or anything, and he'd just be like, "Yeah, we're going on a trip." Stuff me in the back of his car and just bring me along with him on pretty rad trips. Pay for everything for me just because I didn't have money well, to go. Explain who Tarquin Robbins is at this time because not all of our listeners maybe know. At this time, he was pretty much the biggest, biggest. Uh, he kind of brought in the style of the jib to uh, snowboarding, I would say. He was a bit of a bad boy. People thought there was like rumors that he had guns on him on the mountain and stuff, but he had like really sick style and really sick video parts. Kind of the big, super big pants and, uh, and short board was really sick. We'd have to just throw some clips up for people yeah. to understand, I guess, because he kind of just brought in a new style to snowboarding, which was a bit more like skate influenced. And uh, at this time, he was a very big pro. And you were driving around in a nice car, right? When he yeah. picked you up. Mm. It was this really sick, uh, yeah, I think it was a Lincoln Continental with rims. And uh, this is the type of guy Tarquin was. He uh, gave me that car. No what? one day. Yeah, he just gave it to me when he was done with it, with the rims and everything. And I drove it until it, uh, until I drove it back east one year and didn't make it back out west. So I had to leave <laughs> it in like Kansas or something. But I got like probably three years out of it and it was sick. He just gave it to me like, no questions asked. Here's a title. Let's Picturing go. you driving, pushing that thing around like Colchester, Vermont is such a yeah, scene. It had gold rims on it. It was so, he, I mean, Tarquin was like the first gangster snowboarder. I guess we could say that. Very, he was a hip-hop DJ, you know, like the first person to kind of 
to persona the the gangster in snowboarding <laughs> and uh i mean he was in japan he was just humongous but it was sick yeah he took a liking to me and would just bring me all of a sudden we're going to jackson we're going to big bear and uh never would ask for he had was making tons of money so he wouldn't ask for anything and i got to meet tons of people you know and at the same time j2 and i became good friends and he was kind of doing the same thing as well introducing me to all sorts of people and and uh i think that was kind of how i got into these videos and all that and ali as well Ali was a pretty big pro back then as well hey birdman i think we should hit a quick uh patreon right now i'm ready for it let's go first of all i want to thank all the patreon members uh, you all help the wheels of this incredible podcast turn. So thank you for your support. We support you. You support us. It's a great relationship. Uh, this is coming from Den M. Might be Denim. Might be Den M. D-E-N-M. Eastone, what is your craziest sleepwalking story? You know, what's funny about a sleepwalking story is I'm asleep. <laughs> <laughs> how, how am I going to know what this is crazy is? So that's like someone else has to tell me what's going on. What's the craziest story someone's told you? From- you know, uh, I've heard a lot more, a lot of a lot of sleep talking stories, um, more so than sleepwalking. Because I think at my house when I'm sleepwalking, when it happens, my wife just stays asleep, doesn't really say much to me. On trips, though, I mean, Chris has seen evidence maybe oh, yeah. of, of sleepwalking, mm-hmm. like a bunch of food around yeah. and grapes on the floor. Yeah, we were in Quebec, uh, <laughs> and he we woke up in the morning, and there was like a gallon of milk on the counter, and like an entire, uh, like basically bowl of grapes that he had dusted in the middle of the night. And they were probably like Stark's grapes or something. Someone that was super bummed that I ate their grapes. And then in the morning, he actually ended up like throwing up and shitting himself from all that milk and grapes. But yeah, Um, I... I don't know if I have a specific Finland. Sleep. What about Finland? With oh, that's the, Finland the story. Yeah, that's see, someone's got to remind me. Yeah, I, think, I think JP was there for Finland. Yes. I might have heard this from Thank JP Thank you Walker. for reminding me because yeah. I was asleep. Yep. Um, so, yeah, we're in Finland in a Airbnb, and it's very small. Whoever booked this thing, man. <laughs> As I showed up a couple days late, there's nowhere to sleep. And uh, I think it was like, I think there was like the whole 32 team almost. I don't think you were there, minus yeah, you. Yeah, I wasn't there, yeah. But there's literally like eight people, and it's kind of like living back in uh, Avon, Colorado, like <laughs> nine people in a two-bedroom, gear everywhere in this place. And I had this little like corner on the floor with a sheet that they left out for me. So I wasn't sleeping much anyways, so I took a sleeping pill. And it was one of those scenarios where you take a sleeping pill, and then uh, you're asleep, and you take another sleeping pill which happens to people. And so I was completely out of it. And uh, all I hear in the morning, I just, I just remember the aftermath in the morning. So apparently <laughs> I was up, I was pinballing uh, off all the gear and the walls, like bouncing off the walls, bouncing off the walls to get to the kitchen. And that's right where Scotty Stevens was sleeping. <laughs> and I proceeded to make a 40-ounce latte. <laughs> Like, I, I found, like, the biggest, it was a, more of a bowl, maybe, but it was literally 40 ounces. And I sat there and just pressed the button, and filled up a 40-ounce latte. And Scotty, like, didn't even get up and say anything. He just, like, probably was awake, like, what the fuck is going on, man? I, I, I seem to remember, to someone who was in that apartment said you were giving out, like, stock market advice. <laughs> like, right, dude, I've heard from my wife I've sold real estate and crunch numbers and... <laughs> One time I was, uh, I was apparently surfing and yeah, she's, your wife texts me the quote. (laughs) Yeah. I I wake up or or she's awake because I'm talking and 
I just go, surf o'clock, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and she had it, she recorded it, and she couldn't find the recording, but just stuff like that. But I've actually crunched numbers before, and people say they were the math was right. And I'm like, horrible at math. Wow. Yeah, so, which is pretty crazy. I could see that as a t-shirt, surf o'clock. It's surf, it's surf, surf look, o'clock? Look yeah. for that in the bomb hole store. And soon. I said it fully in a surf surfer's voice, too. Oh, yeah. Like, I was fully in the water. Chaka's yeah. out. Chaka's <laughs> out. And my wife happened to record it, which is pretty sick. That's incredible. Yeah, so it ha- hasn't happened in a while, either. I don't know. Maybe that phase of my life is gone. We'll see. It's kind of like a stepbrother stuff, the uh, couch cushions in the oven <laughs> scenario. <laughs> All right, buds. I think it's time for that part in the show. You know what that is, Bert? I know exactly what it is. What is it? It's named that video part. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Name that video part is presented by our friends over at the Icon Pass, huh, T-Bird? Indeed, my friend. The Icon Pass is now on sale for the 2022-2023 winter season. We're asking you to keep the stoke alive Seek a season of fun in the mountains and do you across 50 of the best ski and snowboard destinations on planet Earth. The Icon Pass family welcomes three new legendary destinations to its family of mountains. Chamonix in France, Sun Valley in Idaho, and Snow Basin right here in Utah. Additionally, new pass options have been added to the mix starting at only $249. The Icon Pass 2-day and Icon Pass 3-day offer a range of available, affordable Entry points. Score the best prices on 22-23 and get all the early season goods. Additionally, upon purchase, Buy Now, Ride Now is now an option with immediate spring access to three mountains and a total of 10 destinations by April 11th. Save up to $200 in child passes with the purchase of an adult pass. What we're saying, Icon Pass, it's legit. Drop in. So... Pay it forward with a payment plan as low as 0% down, 0 APR. And you can find all that information at iconpass.com. Pick up your pass now. Let's do this. All right, Stony Buds, you know what time it is. I do. We're getting into Name That Video part, and I know you've been dreading this. Uh, what's your confidence level? How are you feeling? Talk to me. Uh, 0.0. 0.0. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Here's the thing is I probably should all this talk about Hard Hunger, the Homeless. I should have watched it again. It's been a lot of years. So if you'd used one of those, I will not know it. Um, but I have a feeling if it's like hip hop, it's a Tech Nine movie, probably. Well, let's see how you do. Yeah, we'll see what's up. Here we go. So that has to be Hard Hungry and the Homeless. That's correct. Let's keep it running for a sec. I do remember that one actually. Okay. But the part, holy smokes. Can you picture it in your mind? I can kind of picture it. I, I'll give you this goofy-footed rider. You know I'm trick-slexic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my problem is I, I snowboard and skate different ways and surf a different way, so in my mind, it's goofy and regular is the same. Watching the Olympics, though, I started practicing, and I actually I think I got it now. But goofy-footed rider. Um. It's not the part, no, it's not the part where they're messing around on the logs and they light it on fire, right? It's not that part. It's after that part. I'll keep after that part. Post-log fire. Oh. You got to throw me more bones. He currently lives in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Dude. And yeah. he like, mainly uh, rides powder and he's a sushi chef. Oh, gooch. Yes. Boom. There it is. Let's go. Congratulations. <laughs> you got it, buds. 
We don't have a prize pack for you, but what we do have is something I think even better. Hand this thing over. Better than a prize pack? S- slide yeah. this across the table here. What's in the box? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 100K? Yes, Donnie! <laughs> do I need to show this to the camera yeah, or a break? I don't know. No, I think you're good. I don't know if the camera can see. You might have to take it out of the box. Take What's it in the box? You know that movie? Uh, what it, it's, I brought this up last night. Seven. <laughs> oh yeah, seven. Yeah. There's a head in the box. It's his wife's. <laughs> it's not head. a head. It's it is a, actually. It's it my actually head. is a head. Yeah. It's my head in a box. Episode one hundred. Wow. And can you, you know, for the audience who maybe can't see, can you explain what's happening in said photo? Oh, tinfoil hat. <laughs> there you go, audience. That photo is unbelievable. This is amazing, dude. I didn't know you could put photos on a cake. Why are we making prints? We could be selling <laughs> cake photos. We will mail you a cake. It will show <laughs> squished and destroyed by the time you get it. That's great. They did great work with that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you, you don't get a prize pack. Uh, we have, you have all the merch. So, you know, I figured, figured you don't need any more merch. That's incredible. So we got you a cake. This is the coolest cake I've ever gotten. I will say that. <laughs> uh, for part two of Name That Video Part, this is for the listeners. Uh, Buds, how do they how do they decide if they know the the song? You're supposed to ask him. Oh yeah, T Bird. Do you know Do you know how to how this works? I actually do know how this works. Okay. What you're gonna do is you're gonna comment on the thumbnail of Chris and Ethan, aka Eastone. Uh, first comment with the rider in the video is gonna win a bomb hole prize pack. That's right. Uh, and here's the song. First first one to comment gets it. Oh wow. Now that's a track. Like actual certified iconic video part. That's that's what we call a certified banger. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for playing. Name that video part. Stony Buds, while you were living in Colorado after the great migration, the Lewis and Clark migration into the new school of, of competitive snowboarding or of uh, freestyle snowboarding, so to speak. You started a little company. I did. Let's kind of dig deep into that. Give us, uh, give us all the details behind Tech Nine. The deets. The deets. So we, uh, yeah, we moved into uh, Colorado, and it, it kind of happened pretty fast. When we got out there that first year, um, I don't know who was doing it first. It might have been like Tarquin, but. They were taking their bindings and cutting them apart and using the parts from them and going to Home Depot and you'd get a bracket and uh, make a binding out of it pretty much. You'd, you'd cut your heel cup off a metal binding, use a hinged bracket mounted on your board and it would be the first baseless bindings. And they were just handmade, you know. J3 was my roommate. Jason Damaris, his name. He uh, went to, I went to high school with him. I give him an air horn. He was uh, working up at Beaver Creek as a snowblower, so he had access to their, like, tool shed. And uh, he was, they had, like, a metal bender in there. And so we got diamond plate metal and bent it into a heel cup with their, with their tools and then uh, made some, more, some of our own sick-looking baseless bindings that were all chromed out because we, with all the tools we had, we could make really dope ones. At this time, they were also cutting the nose and tail off of boards. You'd put a plate on it, and uh, you draw a line, and then just cut your nose and tail off. So these boards were all short, and it was it was new school, is what it was called. 
and uh, try to look more like a skateboard, I guess. And having your feet on a basis binding was like, you know, more skateboard feeling. And uh, my dad came out to visit, and he actually just surprised us. He showed up without calling him and his uh, wife and barged in the room and Ali and I were in bed together, which he didn't know we like shared a bed. It was probably a little awkward for him <laughs> to know what was going on. So he came out to visit us, saw these bindings Jay had made, J3 had made, and they were dope. Like they looked all chrome. The straps were finished because they were off some other bindings. And he was uh, like, I, I have some friends. He's like the businessman, eternal businessman, salesman. He was like, I could get these made in New York um, and make them look really dope, like professional. And we were like, dude, that would be sick. So he made some, and uh, they were like anodized metal, which you could make them in like any color you wanted, really. You could buy straps at the time from this company, Duratech, which was a binding company, and you could just buy the straps. So we used their straps and high backs, and uh, we went to a trade show, just walk around at ASR, and uh, we also gave the bindings out to like Tarquin, J2, gave the bindings out to tons of people, so all the pros were kind of riding them. But we show up at that trade show, we're just walking around, and uh, we meet these Japanese guys, and they put in an order for, I think it was like for $300,000 worth of them. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. crazy. And, yeah. you, and you weren't trying, you weren't like, let's make a lot of money with this. No. You were just like, we oh, were let's just see like, what happens. Yeah, this is dope. Like, this, let's see what happens. I mean, but my dad was probably more interested in the business side. And it turned out that they were Maneuver Line, which is like one of the cooler uh, distributors in Japan, like... They kind of pick up all the brands that are more uh, backed by riders, let's say, like kind of like every cool brand that a rider started at at some point is the brand they would carry. And they ended up being a distributor for the whole time, 20 years. Damn. Which was nuts. So they basically put us in business. And so from there, we had this big order and we had to fill it. So we sat down. We didn't even have a name at that point, really. Um, the bindings were just kind of more generic, just the first baseless bindings anyone had ever made. Oh, hold on. We have a, you have one behind you. Right? Oh, I do. There you is one, one down there. There's one behind Bird. These were more after we got the name, but they look just like this. You had to T-bolt your board. You had to T-bolt the board, which uh, voided all warranty on your snowboard. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a monopoly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, once you picked your stance too, that, that was your stance. There was no change in it. You had to drill right through your whole board and then P-Tex over the hole in the bottom. But uh, so, yeah, we ended up sitting down and being like, all right, we got this order. We're a brand. And because uh, of Dancehall Reggae at the time, which I was a big fan of, they're always talking about Tech 9 and it was all metal looking. So I named it Tech 9 and uh, boom, we were a company. Wow. It was pretty sick. Now, at this time, you're still a snow, you're still snowboarding. You hadn't transitioned into photography. No, I was just snowboarding, um, like that video you had pulled up before, like that was, I'm sure, after after this happened and all that. This was like right when I moved out there, so it was like 1993, and uh, still for, I don't think I'd pick up a camera until uh, like 2000, so. Well, let's, let's stay on Tech 9, too, because I'm fascinated about the early inception, so you, you go, you put your order in, you start selling them all of a sudden there's money coming in going like how was it just learning the the ups and downs of entrepreneurship there you know it was crazy and at first we handled like j3 obviously handled the binding um how the bindings were going to be like the design because he had designed the first ones and he kind of had a mind for it um 
my dad would set up all like the shipping setup in the East Coast. And then we kind of just through guerrilla marketing, which I kind of took over, got as many, like almost all the dope pros at the time that we could on the product, which really got the name out there quick. And so it was easy to grab a bunch of sales reps and uh, all of a sudden they were getting in stores all over the place. And yeah, it became, it became a real business really fast. And uh, we were all pretty excited. I mean, none of us had ever, except for my dad, had any experience. So it was kind of like basically my college, I would say. And how, how were the politics of like divvying up who had what part of the business? And was there anything there? Well, one thing I was going to get into is, is my dad, the businessman that he was, when he came in, he was like, he divvied each, my stepbrother, uh, J3, and myself, each 3% of the company, which is a very small amount, but we were so young. We were just like, ah, oh, whatever. And his reason was he uh, he was the person putting in all the money. So he was like, this is, and we were young. We were like 18, so we were just like excited to be able to do it. And, uh, and there was obviously no money to get paid either, you know? So we just kind of started like that. And we were as, as happy as could be with those amounts either. Cause we were just excited to be working and snowboarding, you know? And so, um, the roles of the company just kind of came from what people were good at. You know, I, I was good at talking to people and doing marketing and a bit of sales. My dad was good at sales as well. Um, J3 was an engineer, um, or he didn't even know he was an engineer at the time. He just became an engineer. He would he would end up going to China and designing every binding we made, which was pretty sick. So he got good at like CAD and and he'd spend time over at, at China and all that. Uh, but at the time we were only binding, so yeah, it was we just kind of grew small at the time and uh, took our roles and kind of within a couple of years we got bigger than we thought we'd get. So it got a little more serious. And then I was at my dad's house in the summertime visiting where he was running tech nine out of and I go out to the mailbox and uh, get the mail and there was a Amex bill in my name or in my name. I was just like, Oh, that's weird. I don't have an Amex. And I open it up and it's like $70,000. Whoa. And I'm just like, what the fuck is this? This is how tech nine was found. Like funded was a credit card in my name (laughs) that my dad put out. So I was just like, Whoa dude, what's up? And so, Obviously, took more of a percentage of the company at the time, but uh, that was like kind of a first, first kind of uh, inkling. Is just like, well, this is kind of crazy. This is this is a little bit weird. But uh, either way, my dad paid it all off, which was tight with the company, so I wasn't stuck with the debt. But it was still just a, a little bit wild of a thing to see. But it did get me more percentage of the company, which I guess I was more stoked at, at the time, anyways. So it turned out I funded Tech Nine, <laughs> <laughs> and there was like, like an a age, proxy. And my mom had kind of warned me about this stuff because there was always a joke: um, don't give your social security number to my dad if you have a baby, because it'll end up uh, they'll have a credit card. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and this unfortunately is a fact. Like when I actually got my own Amex credit card, it, I got it in the mail and said "member since '68," and I'm just like. Yeah. Remember since 68, I wasn't born yet, and it's like, because he had already had a credit card way back when, like, just how he was funding business, like, he had credit cards in all the kids' names to, like, fund all his endeavors. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, kind of wild. Yeah. But that's uh, so how some people roll, I guess. So, uh, with the company, you guys are, you're cranking along, how many years did you just do bindings? And also, like, what was the gross as far as, like, revenue, like, It sounds like 200K the first year. Yeah, you know, we got up to like a million in revenue pretty quick as just bindings. And uh, 
issue was once you hit a million in revenue, you got to be able to fund your production. And uh, none of us, kind of, like my, none of us had the money. You know, it's a lot of money. Like you need to be able to go to the, your uh, factory and break off a check for like 500K or something. And back then, sometimes your distributors would give you like 25 to 50% up front, which they never would do now. But Japan would actually give us a little bit of money, but it still like wasn't enough to fund production. So we got to a point where we had to bring on someone with money or figure out a bank loan. But it's hard to get a bank loan on a company like that that's seasonal. And I mean, there's a lot of better businesses than a snowboard business, that's, which is a pretty hard business being seasonal and so niche. So we had to bring on an investor or else we wouldn't be able to make uh, production. And that's kind of, I think, every small company that grows too fast is a problem that they're either encountering or going to encounter if they don't uh 686 is an example of a company that grew small at first and right mike west was able to like leverage everything properly and not have to ever do that and i think that's pretty much a black belt move because it it's definitely a good thing so we bring in an investor and uh you know they're rad at first they're always super dope and actually our first investor was super cool and the way they see growth is like, all right, you got bindings, like, oh, you got to make boards now. And uh, like, how, el how else are we going to get more market share, you know? So they kind of come in with the money and, and you have to, you got to do what they, they want to do or else it's not going to work out. And so we ended up, once we make boards, you kind of can't keep all the same team riders. So it gets to be a bit more of a complicated scenario with marketing because we kind of had it made when it was just bindings nobody was making money no pros were making money from from a binding sponsor so we were able to get any rider we we wanted at the time which is rad so you make boards it kind of complements thing com complicates things and uh their other sponsors get a little little worked up it's like you can't have a burton rider all of a sudden and um it just gets a little bit more convoluted and then they wanted to make outerwear too and then that even gets harder you get all of a sudden three categories but we ended up outgrowing that that investor so we ended up having to get another investor so then like everything gets diluted again and more money comes in it gets more complicated and uh but we were growing pretty fast i think at our peak um geez we were at like six million or something which is Oof. which is pretty good Big some, company. Yeah. That's, that's some cheddar bisque. That's some bisque. A lot of yeah, bisque. Absolutely. Yep. And it was, you know, we were at the point where we were able to pay riders and pay them pretty well and all that. And it, it was pretty dope. But running a business is insane. It's like pretty much every, you you, almost, you start to learn that there's no matter what going to be a problem that's going to put you out of business if you don't face it. It could be your factory all of a sudden burned down. That happens in Japan. Like you have to get multiple factories, you start to realize, in China. Because one could maybe screw you over while another one burns down and hopefully the third one delivers. It's just, it's madness and it's it's hard. And at what point, as Tech 9 is growing, were you like, okay, I'm going to table like the pro snowboarding thing and I'm kind of getting sucked into this a little bit more full time? Um, that was a very hard thing for me because I didn't want to table it. You know what I mean? I just wanted to shred as much as I could. Um, and the way it was working, it was working pretty good so that it was better to have us out West because that's where everything was going on. And the business was back East with shipping and all that. So, uh, I would say it was when I moved to Utah, I kind of, uh, that's when I got into photography and I guess, and that, that was more why I tabled riding. It wasn't as much cause of tech nine. 
because you can still ride and have enough time. Like, you have the whole summer. I mean, there's there's so much time. As And back then, it wasn't very hard to be a pro rider, I would say, as like it is these days. You know what I mean? You don't have to be training like Ayumu must have to train to do what he's doing in the pipe. It was pretty mellow. There's a lot of partying going on and a lot of broing down, and <laughs> it really, like, wasn't very complicated. So it was very easy to do the Tech 9 side of things. And uh, we didn't have a lot of money, so we took on a lot of work ourselves as well. Like, I ended up doing all the graphic design and all the web design and uh, all the marketing. And so everyone just step up to roles, and it would work good. And it, it feels like you're not working when you're doing it for a snowboard company. So it was pretty pretty mellow. to, to use. The hardest part was learning things, I guess, because I didn't have any background in graphic design. I just kind of learned as I went. And this sense. is all print where you're you're like taking scans of film and, and yeah. laying out the ads, right? Yeah. I remember like the first, all of a sudden websites became a major thing, like drawing what the website was going to look like on paper and then having to go take some class in LA that taught you how to code and you had to build the website all through code, which was, cra- it was crazy. And then there was programs that kind of helped that, but it was all like letters and numbers and, and uh, symbols to make a website back then so it was pretty wild like took a took a course in that like a i don't know like a 10 day course or something and then had a website going but uh i was obviously the future so so you had to do it but yeah it was uh kind of just learn as you go and take a different hat on the company and um even though we were doing those sales there still wasn't a lot of money like you didn't want to just bring on mad employees and there was like i said all these problems you always have to be ready for so it was uh I mean, running a brand is is a lot of work. It's crazy to keep it all going. And especially when it's a snowboard brand that's seasonal, you're only making your money kind of in a brief window that's from Christmas to February. That's like all the time you have for sales. So if you ship a month late, like you're in big trouble. So it's just uh, just problem after problem to overcome. So you end up getting good at that. And, uh, you know, I was stoked. We last 20 years, which was awesome. Um, I wouldn't trade it in for anything. Like it was an awesome experience. And, uh, yeah, after I think towards the end of it, I kind of was a little bit over it anyway. So it was kind of exciting after designing a catalog for 20 years, writing the copy. Like, how are you going to write that intro paragraph for the 20th time to be, say the same thing, but different, you know what I mean? It just gets to be, and picking another, I mean, board graphics are always super fun because you get to work with the the artists and pros and come up with these really rad rad pieces of art so that was always really exciting but after 20 years it kind of i mean you have this like attachment to this brand it almost feels like it's your child because you like you kind of molded it from its conception to where it is now and you're very protective of of how the uh how it's going to be treated and everything that's going to be everything about that brand that's released out to the public you know you almost have to manicure it a certain way if you want to keep an eye on the marketing and it's just uh, after 20 years, it gets, it gets to be a little like, eh, maybe I should try something different. Another like watershed moment for you was your migration to Salt Lake city where you currently live. Um, what, what prompted that move? Um, Marco moved out, wet, out to Utah first. Mark Frank Montoya. Mark, Mark Frank Montoya. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he was a, one of the biggest tech nine writers at the time. Um, super good friend moved out there and was basically like, man, you guys are blowing it. Like it's the mountains out here are just so much better. And I had gone out there once with J2 as well, J2 and Megan Pischke when they dated at the time and uh, went to Snowbird with my board. I think it was like one of my 
my uh, original sin boards with the nose and tail cut down. So it was like a, I think it was like a 135 or something. I'm on the tram <laughs> on a powder day. And the locals just looking at me in twos, just like, dude, who are you guys? <laughs> and we were on mushrooms and it was just like, oh, dude, I don't know. What are we doing here? <laughs> Bombs are going off in the avvies for, for, you know, how they do mm-hmm. at Snowbird. And, and it was uh, quite the experience, but fun as hell. So I kind of knew Utah was dope. So Marco got us out here, and uh, I think in the migration at first it was Blotto and myself, and uh, we ended up moving in with Marco and getting a house here, kind of in between the canyons, and and it was dope. The, the hype was real. Marco was right. The mountains here, awesome. Now I want to rewind back to a couple, just another Tech Nine, a couple of Tech Nine things because it's such an iconic brand for so many different reasons. Like a, we got to talk about how you guys kind of carved a niche where, where you guys were kind of hip hop inspired, whatever, every, you know, it's all like you, you started making FODT finger on the trigger and those videos were insane. And, and specifically I want to talk about that because those kind of shaped my childhood. You guys had represent and then gen pop. And those first two was when it was just bindings and it was like, everybody was, it was like a big homie video. The soundtrack was incredible. And those ones, like those, that video, like Gen Pop shaped my childhood. I watched that video more times than I can count. And, and uh, I guess, like, what was the vibe when you guys were like, all right, let's make some videos to, to back up Tech Night here? So, uh, a couple years into living in Utah, um, Blotto was our team manager. He ended up taking a job with Burton. So, I ended up talking to Cole Taylor, who was still living in uh, Colorado. And told him to move out, and he did. And uh, he decided to get a video camera because I was shooting photos. And he just had this little, I think they were, what were they, VX 2000s back yep. then? Those, those little dogs? Yeah. And uh, so he got a VX 2000. And, you know, we had this dope team. But a lot of them, it was hard to get their full attention because of, uh, you know, they're filming with Whitey. They're out with Andy Wright shooting photos. And uh, we had to just kind of just demand like some time with him and cole's pretty good at that i guess so cole being a team manager he's like i'm not just going to be a team manager i want to be out out in out in the scene you know so he started filming and we were able to get time with marco just because of our our friendship time with j2 time with ali also uh the filmers were down to give us some extra footage whitlake like sent us all the footage of him and represent um and we also had some some new kids like hebel and uh, we were able to get full-time with those guys, you know. And uh, Cole and I sat down, and we were going to make a teaser for the uh, trade show for Represent because we got a bunch of cool footage, and we, we knew we wanted to call it Represent. And we sit down to edit, and we were just like, Shit, we don't know how to edit. <laughs> 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 and l- l- luckily, <laughs> luckily, Nico Droz happened to be out staying with us, and he's just like, yeah, he's all super French, just like, <laughs> get out of the way i will show you how to edit <laughs> he sat down basically showed us how to edit and uh we were able to make that first teaser i think we spelled represent wrong in the first teaser <laughs> but we went to the trade show and people were hyped and we were able to get other because we had a lot of big name writers in there so we were able to get other sponsors to help pay for it because tech nine didn't have that much money i think analog was a sponsor of the first one um so we were able to end, then go out the rest of that season. The trade shows used to be a little bit earlier back then when they were in Vegas. And uh, we were able to get some funding for the movie Beyond Tech 9. And we had all the riders, so we were able to put out Represent and Gen Pop. And Nico showed us how to edit. So at that time, Cole and I split part for part, basically. And uh, 
you know, you didn't have to get rights for music. So we were able to just use whatever we wanted. So it was really cool back at that time to be able to just pick a lot of rad songs and stuff we hadn't seen in other movies. And it wasn't all hip hop yet. It was kind of a mix. Well, and that's, that's a good talking point because that's what I remember. I remember, you know, Tech Nine had a bunch of hip hop centric kids right like they wore baggy clothes they were like smoking blunts on camera you had mfm but you also had daryl and hebel and riders that didn't necessarily do that so i remember watching the videos being like well this dude's style is really dope like to a rap song or whatever but then you see like hebel come on and you're like whoa this kid like pants aren't quite as baggy but he had just a different vibe and i thought that was cool about tech nine because some riders were just on the binding some were head to toe we had that one dude, Miami Thunder. Who I remember like, that dude, yeah. <laughs> he was like a full mixture of tight pants with a baggy jacket. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, we tried to run the gamut of it and uh, have that mix. And, I mean, you have to be conscious because we were already – Tech 9 was already a niche because it's a snowboarding brand. But then if it's all hip-hop, it's like a niche in a niche. And you're already a niche and a niche and a niche with a binding, just a binding company at first. So it's just <laughs> like, how are we going to grow, you know? So we had to be – you had to think about that and have some other people on a team like Whitlake and, and Daryl. And uh, so I, I guess that's why we did that. Mikey? Was Mikey ever on? LeBlanc? Yeah. Nope. He no, was on. It was Road Drake. Yeah. Oh, that's he right, had a Drake yeah. Pro model. That's right. But what about the first, uh, one of the most iconic uh, Tech 9 bindings that ever sticks out to me is the Scotty Whitlake dual two different color binding. Yeah, that was dope. That was all Scotty's idea. Uh, his first binding, actually. Was uh, brown because he wanted to be the color of poop <laughs> with a, with yellow logos, so it's poop and pee. <laughs> and uh, what's funny is Doman like did that first um, artwork, and uh, that's kind of the first artwork I think he did was the Tech Nine. Or yeah, the that's how he got to start. Yep. That's how he got to start with with us doing that first Whitlake art, and then he went on to work with us the whole time, which was really cool. But then he did the black, one black, one white, and that was fully his idea, and he pitched it to us and. You know, I was very heavy into letting the riders, like, really pick the stuff they wanted any time we could let them because that's how we started, you know, is having that having that outlet to be able to have these riders that knew what was going on. If you don't use that, you're blowing it. You know, and a lot of big companies don't do that, especially back then. So when a rider wants one black, one white, we're like, yeah, let's make one black, one white. And it was pretty sick. I don't know if you touched on this maybe briefly, but a lot of people don't know that you picked, like, I'll be hanging out with you and be like, oh, I picked that song. Like, you picked a lot of the soundtrack, especially for the early Tech Nine. Yeah, for the early Tech Nine songs, especially like the non hip hop stuff, that was, I wanted the movie to be a full mix. And uh, Cole and I were both making it. So, yeah, I would pick a lot of, a lot of the tracks as well. Until, like, I think three movies in, Cole took over the whole process and we kind of went more uh i mean cole wanted to go full hip-hop and and have it actually dj'd which was pretty sick like marco would do the soundtracks and that's when it went all hip-hop but i was kind of stoked when it was like a mix you mm-hmm. know i think we almost went too far to that hip-hop side maybe well you found you found your niche yeah we found our i mean the people the back- that supported the brand like there's so many kids with tech nine tattoos and and people that really backed in Japan, you guys were huge, right? Dude, yeah, we would go to Japan, and it would was awesome. They would fly us out there once a year because there was such a big following. Like, I think Bradshaw, there was one time, at one point where he was like the highest selling um, product in Japan, like over all the other brands, like between Thirty Two and Tech Nine. He was just a juggernaut over there, Lucas. Damn. Yeah, they just, uh, I mean, those guys used to do really good numbers with their pro model stuff over there, Lucas Magoon and Chris Bradshaw. But yeah, the tech tech nine, the the people of Japan really just I just love that hip hop style and the baggy look. I think and 
and really uh, gravitated towards it, which was cool. So it was always a very good market for us. All right, Stony Buds, I think it's a good time to talk about a little transition, uh, maybe into photography here. Uh, before we get into that, we have a guest question from Blotto. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Blotto just dropped an incredible new book, all shot on iPhone, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. It's called Blotto's Phone Book. It's probably sold out, but if it's not, make sure you get one of these bad Larrys. Support Blotto because Blotto kicks ass. And here we go. Good morning, Bombhole. Good morning, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Blotto here. I got a question for Stone. When I walked into the Tech 9 office eons ago, handed over the camera gear and let you know I was moving to the East Coast, how'd you feel about becoming team photographer in an instant? Secondly, as you progressed with the camera in hand, when did it sink in you were on your way to a photography career? Really hyped to hear your story, Ethan. And thanks again, everybody, for tuning into the bomb hole. Appreciate y'all. Blotto, Blotto lived a lot of my story. <laughs> yeah, he was my roommate for many, many years. Um, the camera, yeah, Blotto was our team. He was a team manager as well as the photographer. Um, he had convinced. I mean, he just we had a meeting one day, and he was like, "I want to get a te- uh, camera." You know, I'm, I'm out there with everybody, so we uh, through Tech Nine got him a camera. And uh, he ended up getting the opportunity to be the Burton team manager. He was started as a team manager before he was a photographer. And uh, it was kind of something that he couldn't turn down. You know, it was a lot of money. Um, it's, I mean, it's Burton. You know, it's a hard, hard thing to uh, say no to. So when he came back from his meeting in Burlington, he uh, just handed me the camera. Just like, oh, take this. This is yours now. And because uh, it was bought by Tech Nine, you know, so all of a sudden I was going to fill that role. And I guess I was kind of ready for it as we got out to Utah. Um, you know, the jumps got a bit bigger. How's <laughs> <laughs> that E roll looking at this time? <laughs> Dude, the, the E roll one, I think I did an E roll on some giant jump behind Marco and like twisted my ankle. Still hurts to this day. <laughs> Trying to jump, like, jumps that Marco was jumping at the time, just, like, coming home with a stiff neck <laughs> every day from cartwheeling, those huge-ass... My Marco was building big stuff. Um, so, yeah, I was just like, dude, I'm obviously not as good as Mark Frank Montoya, you know? And we have this business, Tech 9, so if I'm able to be out with the rider still, I still felt like I was part of it you know that's the favorite the best part of it is being out building jumps and hanging and seeing the progression happen so when blotto handed me the camera i was stoked and uh he handed it over gave me a bunch of tips and kind of showed me how to use it and then i just kind of started going out and at the same time when we started represent you know cole was always shooting video i mean you have to if you're making a movie and you're going to make it happen so I was out there for every session, so I just started stacking photos. And I was lucky at the time Kevin Zacker and Nate Christensen, um, they would let me kind of shadow them to uh, learn how to shoot shoot photos, basically. Because back then it was film. It wasn't as easy as Digi. There was a little bit more to it. You got to use the right film and the right conditions and use a light meter. And, and uh, there was just more to it than you can look at the back of the photo now and know if it looks good or not. So those guys were really cool about letting me come out with them. And it was like big dog sessions. You know, like Kevin was one of the biggest photographers and Nate Christensen was one of the biggest photographers at the time. So uh, I was able to shoot with, like, the best people until uh, they started seeing my photos get good. And then they're kind of like, yeah, man, maybe you start got to start going out on your own a little bit now. <laughs> and uh, 
So that was, I mean, maybe like a season or maybe a season of shadowing those guys and, yeah, just learning the ropes. And then from there, I just started shooting a bunch of photos. And I think the other part was when did I realize um, it was going to become something. Um, I mean, I don't think I ever thought about that. Once I got the camera, it was just like head down, let's stack. Because it's kind of like you feel like you're a rider getting clips, you know. You get that clip high. And you shoot a good photo, you're just, all right, what's next, what's next? But I think when you first start, you kind of shoot a photo and you realize how you blew it almost. You're kind of just like, oh, man, I should have done this, whatever that might be. And so then you're more excited to go out and fix that and shoot a better photo. And then you want a better photo. And then you want a better trick. And you just, like, it all of a sudden becomes a drug almost. You're just like, oh, this is... This is something you just need to do, and you just put your head down and stack. So I never really even thought about that other part. Well, and I've heard, like, legendary stories about, like, the Tech 9 work ethic. Like, you guys used to hit it real hard, you and Cole. Yeah, Cole, uh, I mean, we just wanted everything to be dope. So there, and it, we were in a time in Salt Lake where there was a lot going on. You know, Whitey was out there making the best movies of the time, and uh, Andy Wright was out there with these dudes just getting the sickest photos. So there was, uh, you just want to be on that level, especially when you have a brand that's on the same stage. You want your yours to look just as good. So I think that's where the work ethic came from is that everything just had to be very professional. And it wasn't going to run in the mags if it wasn't either, you know, and the video wasn't going to be up to par with the brand that had this certain reputation. As he kind of got into making videos like he had a certain vision for his cinematography and a certain look he had to have and i did with my photos as well so i guess we just were we're getting after it yeah that makes sense too is you're also taking photos submitting them to the mags and then you're also taking photos and laying them out in ads yeah so there's probably a whole thought process of getting better looking at them got to be on the same stage as burton this company that's spending a lot of money or whoever else is was killing it at the time or else we were going to look not as good, and then it, it, we shouldn't even be paying. You would pay good money for the ads, you know? Now, I have a, a sidebar question. For any person that's trying to get into photography, you know, we get messages. You get messages, I'm sure, all the time. But yeah. What's What's your biggest advice for somebody that's, that's trying, to, trying to figure it out? I think uh, the biggest advice is just get out there and shoot every day. Um, even if you don't have the people that are on par yet, you just got to master your craft. But then it's also important to get the people. So once you master the craft a bit, the craft, I think you just got to get to the resort and meet the pros, say what's up to them. And a lot of these guys are don't have photographers right now. I think there's a shortage. So if you're cool, I think that's – and by cool, you don't have to be, like, cool. Like, you just have to be chill and, have a, and make sure you're working at first because you're not going to – be able to do a perim search at first. <laughs> <laughs> the perim is non-existent. The perim is non-existent for no, at first. You're a shovel god on yeah. day one. If you're a shovel god, that's actually going to get you more respect than how you shoot your photos. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So be that shovel, dude. Be the first one there. Like Really show these dudes that you mean business because these guys are serious and they're putting their lives on the line. Like, Don't take that for granted. You know, like... Just be there for them and and don't I, there's been some photographers too that push people to do stuff that's not cool don't do that you know like don't just not just for the photo like these guys have legs that they need to walk later in life <laughs> i've been in the landing i've been in the landing of some street spots like just destroyed and i look over at you and you're just like you got this bud. <laughs> 
Well, with guys like you, I know you're not going to give already, up. Already, already, <laughs> like, zooming in. <laughs> a guy like you is, I've learned when I'm out with dudes on your level, 95% of the time, you're going to get the trick. Yep. You know what you're doing. So, you just got to, like, put, keeps, you got this, you know, like, give, <laughs> you, the, give you the confidence, because there's not, there's not many times you walk away without it. There's some a riders pro that on that level. There's some riders too that don't want that encouragement, no. and you got to know. And that. you know that you have to know yeah. to just shut the fuck up, yeah. and let them do their thing. And that's a big part of it too. Yeah, yeah knowing when to not say a word. Yep. Don't even look at them. <laughs> if you look at them, like sometimes I've been in situations, you look at someone, they're gonna like say something mean, maybe because they're like in this zone. You just look away real quick. You just got to know when to be there, be funny, not be funny, don't say a word. Be uh, yeah. Just also, I think there's also something to finding finding your crew and finding your your people. Because like, think about us. Like it was like, if I'm going on a trip, I'm calling buds, and you're like, and we always had a great dynamic where it's like, we know the drill. We've been on a million trips. I know you're gonna kill the photo. We're gonna have a great time in the freaking van. Mo- that, most most helps. importantly, we're gonna have the best time in the van. Yeah, you know, and that you gotta have have that with the riders, or else they're not gonna call you for that trip. And they also sometimes maybe go out and find some spots and hit a brighter. That that helps get you in there too. But most of all, just be chill. All right, buds. Let's talk about the bomb hole of the week. Let's get into it. We're talking about Volcom ZipTech. What is ZipTech, Stony Buds? ZipTech is a patented tech system brought to you by the good folks at Volcom that helps you connect your you zip your pants and attach to your jacket. And it's going to keep the winter elements out. You know what it does for me? What does it do? It actually keeps my pants up. Oh, wow. they're always sagging a little too deep. You see me running around mm-hmm. in the streets. It's like a sag protector. Sag, yeah. Sag protector, winter elements out, keeping you dry. If you're wearing cotton underneath that jacket, that cotton's going to stay dry. You're going to be out longer. You're going to have a good time on the slopes. Now, what Volcom riders uh, use this? Do you know? Every rider, if they're smart. Okay. Tell you that. But the ones that probably uh, do cartwheels out there in the powder because they don't land their jumps, guys like Pat Moore. Yeah, Pat Moore is known for violently tomahawking. That's absolutely right. Markless Cleveland, I don't know if he ever falls. He doesn't need it. Uh, he, but prob- he, probably probably remo- he probably it. removes it. He yeah. probably actually removes the technology because he doesn't fall. Now, this is the final episode of Zip Tech, and there's big news. You're not just going to get a uh, standard pro pack from us or a uh, standard uh, prize, pack. prize pack. Thank you. What are you going to get? You're actually going to win a snowboard. Wow. The guys at Volcom are anteing up a snowboard, and it's on. So what do they got to do to win this board, buds? What you want to do is go through and post your favorite bail or uh, your funnest-looking bail on Instagram, and you're going to hashtag Volcom Bombproof, and we are going to pick the winners who's going to get a snowboard, and it's going to be amazing. Okay. And then also, don't forget to tag Bombhole, and who else? Volcom. Okay. Godspeed. Go bail now. All right, Birdman, what's going on with Spy Optics? Well, actually, Chris, I'm glad you asked, because right now, Spy has a ton of new gear, from high-tech snow goggles to MIPS snow helmets and sunglasses with their patented Happy Lens tech. Well, they make helmets? I didn't know that. What is Happy Tech? Well, here's what makes it so sick. Spy's famous Happy Lenses are scientifically tuned to boost both your mood and alertness while enhancing color and contrast through the lens, providing a truly life-changing visual experience. Wow, life-changing. That's big. Would you say they block out the haters? Indeed they do. And you can see for yourself by shopping on spyoptic.com. Use the code BOMBHOLE15 for 15% off your entire order. Again, that's BOMBHOLE, all capital letters, 1-5 for 15% off at spyoptic.com. All right, I think we got a good uh, Patreon question, Bird, that 
pertains to photography and whatnot. Huge thanks to all of our Patreon members. Y'all are the best. Um, this is from Danielle Rittman. Eastone, why is it important for snowboarding culture to still have photography projects and print media when social media is exploding as a way to reach larger audiences? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> is that funny? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> First of all, that's a, a great question. It's a, it's a deep question. <laughs> it, it takes a little reflection. Yeah, know? print as in uh, magazines and stuff. Yep. Magazines, books, whatever they may be, you know? You know, the answer to that is it's the culture. Instagram is just here and gone in a second, and it doesn't really give you time time for your photo to marinate and be seen. And it's so small, too. It doesn't. It almost changes the way you're going to shoot if you're shooting for Instagram. Those close-up photos do so much better on Instagram. If you shoot some huge feature, it's going to be like a little speck on your phone. And uh, it just doesn't do it justice. Print is really a place for you to go and and see all all the images in one place. And without, like when I thought magazines were going to die last year, um, when Snowboarder went out of business, Bridges hadn't started slush, there was just Torment, really, which is a dope publication. Um, but only one magazine, like that's crazy. You know, it's uh, I was bummed. It seemed like Me too. there's going to be no photographers then, like, We've already lost so many. There's way less. And so to see Pat figure out Slush and Blotto putting out a book and Yosh put out a cool book, Mike Yoshida. Um, yeah, you should get, a, get an air horn. These, these projects are, often, are awesome and very needed, and it's just for the culture. Without it, snowboarding, I mean, where are magazines, where are uh, brands, like, going to, I mean, with us, obviously, they have a place to advertise, but... What else, what other places is them to go? You know, it's going to all go to Google and go on Instagram. And it's just, it's just much needed for the culture. Well, and ultimately, you know, an iconic photo that gets posted on Instagram. How's a kid going to see that 15 years later to yeah. do their research? Like you, do, you do need that tangible object that you can like toss on a shelf and grab whenever you want and just kind of flip through. Yeah. Now we, as we have these podcasts, I get DMs where somebody will like send an image we've mentioned because they have the magazine still. I mean, at my house, I don't even know how many magazines. I have thousands of them stacked up. And uh, years from now, that's going to be so dope, you know? Looking back at that, that's you're not going to be able to look back at your phone. They're going to be gone. Everyone talks about the cloud. I don't even know what the cloud is. <laughs> Dude, what is the cloud? No clue, man. That's why it's called the cloud. What is it? An actual cloud? Yeah, what is it? Like air and water. And are my images in this cloud? Like, yeah. am I going to, They're as far as I know, they're gone. I think the cloud is just a way to get money out of us. Yeah. So, I, yeah, it's, it's so needed just for the future. And, I mean, you look around our office and our set right here, the images are what keeps the vibe and, Without that, you know, snowboarding is going to be lost. So the more print we have, the better. That's a great question by Danielle Rittman. Great question. Great answer. Amazing answer. Now, going back to the trajectory of your career, you're sharpening your teeth, you're shooting photos, you're getting better. And then at what point are you just kind of like, all right, things are rolling. We're, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, as you would say, photographer. I don't think I ever had that thought. <laughs> oh, you never had? Yeah. No. But what was that? So, like, getting into, like, shooting for snowboarder and, and making it a career, like, when did, like, because you started, when was your first published photo? When was your first cover? Those type of things. You know, I think my first published photo was in snowboarder, and it was a Bobby Meeks, a photo, maybe a sequence. In Sequai. Sequai. Yep. From uh, Seek Luch. A Seek Luch, yes. Sequential. 
sequential yeah. from mm-hmm. uh, Brighton. And uh, I was hyped. I can't remember which photo editor. It might have been Kovala. What did the photo credit read? Were you E-Stone by this point in time? Uh, you know what? The E-Stone, I started using that on the mic when I used to uh, rock house parties in Jamaican <laughs> dance hall. <laughs> and I killed it. Still do. Still, Still do. Well, some, I mean, I haven't been on the mic in a while, but yes, I, I hope I would anyways. I feel like I get possessed, and but that's where E-Stone came from. Um, more of a rap name, I guess. And so I had that by then, and so... I uh, I think first published photo probably Red Eastone, but I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look at that. Now, we're going to have to just go back over this uh, possessed reggae dance hall uh, guy. <laughs> that I just I've, seen it. Over I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it as well. Yep. Yeah, Lithuania. <laughs> Where did you see it? I saw it in Bend, Oregon. Yep. Mm. Um, karaoke, karaoke session. We convinced the bartender to lock the door. Let us chill there. Eddie Wall was there, yep. I believe. I remember Eddie's jaw hitting the floor, <laughs> like when it started. Once that I get that mic too, it's hard to get it away from me. Yeah, I, I, rem- I can't even do karaoke because I just end up doing my own shit. I, I remember the line "Eastone come with the thunder." That was the, <laughs> that was the opening line, straight up. I'll never forget it. <laughs> Still remember the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, do you think you were, uh, you were like, you know? Lived on an island somewhere, like in a past <laughs> in a life? life. In a previous it's life, possible because I, the m- whole mic thing is wild. I f- have to have like a certain amount of beers in me, mm-hmm. and I have to have a crowd, mm-hmm. and because uh, I can't really, I don't know, just get the excitement of the crowd. So yeah. I need like a, a house full of people, or maybe even I've been in Japan where like on a concert venue, even and, and maybe in Russia a concert venue. So I need people, and uh, I just need to i get possessed and yeah. i don't even know where it comes from because it's not like i write down lyrics or practice like in that time i think it was in japan or russia i battled like amcs in a row <laughs> on stage <laughs> and it was it was awesome but uh yeah it's just something that that happened and i think if i if i was a kid growing up now i'd probably be like would have pursued rap maybe <laughs> yeah because <laughs> i was actually really good at it and uh, but I felt a little weird. I felt like a culture vulture doing like Jamaican dance hall. Mm-hmm. So I kind of backed off from it eventually, and just only did it in a party scenario. I mean, it sounds to me like a like a snowboarder, right? That Jenny flips on the lights, turn on the yep. the filmers ready, the photographers ready, and you just like some riders need that, and they do they, it. They need it for the to to get the trick, right? Yeah, true, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking at Bombhole Cup, we'll hog tie you to like a pole, and yeah. we'll just pour liquor down your throat. <laughs> yeah, and then once there's a, we'll get a crowd to mic going, and like at the end of the contest, just kind of like stand you up there, like kind of like wobbling, like doing the hiccups, and just like <laughs> let you go. You know, what's funny is like once I start getting booze in me, I like fiend for it. If there's a, if there's a DJ, like you, you can't even get me away from it. <laughs> I'm like, give me that mic. I gotta mm-hmm. get that mic. I will say you are hands down top three. Hall of Fame partier when it's on. Mm-hmm. When, when it's, it's on, on, it's on. It's fun. Yeah, flip fun. that switch. Well, that's a great segue into uh, the pub beer crapshoot. Let's talk ah. about our sponsor, Pub Beer, here, T Bird. Speak of the devil. Yeah. Here. Oh, so T Bird's cracking a delicious ice cold pub beer. How is oh, that thing? Goes down so smooth. Wow. So, so smooth. So their motto is cheap, fun beer. Did you know that, Bird? I did know that. Um, it's cheap beer, it's fun to drink, and uh, tastes delicious. I'm down. Absolutely. Well, that being said, let's get into the pub beer crapshoot. Welcome to the pub beer crapshoot. Clackety, clackety. 
All right, we're going to roll some dice. Let's go. Four. 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 What is one of your worst fails? Worst Ooh. fails. Ooh. <clears throat> I don't ever fall, dog. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the memory for that, dog. Your worst bail. Okay, and well, we're gonna we're just gonna sub in question six in addition to that or seven. Who's your favorite person to party with? Holy shit! It's a great question. I mean, there's some been some legendary people to party with over the years, right? Marky Mark. Yeah, he, he might be my favorite person <laughs> to party with. <laughs> I mean, that night was one of my favorite party nights. I would say when T-Bird was partying, he was one of my favorite people to party with. We had some fun times. Yeah, but he's retired. Yeah, I'm retired now. I mean, I'm pretty much retired too, so it's all right. But mm. yeah, I, would, I might go T-Bird on him. Wow. Let's go. Purred an air horn for that. Can I get an air horn? Yeah, that's huge. We had some good times, man. We had a lot of fun. Back when, before T-Bird was shooting photos, or he was just starting shooting photos, he was able to come on the trip as the writer, and I was the photographer. I was just talking to Chris about this, I think last night. Yeah. Like, those days, not trying to be old head, they're, they're, they don't exist anymore. Old head alert. They were awesome. They were awesome. I would literally go there with no camera. I, don't, I think I had a Canon Elf. And I was just the writer. He had a pen. A pen. That's all he had to bring. His board and a pen. It was unbelievable. And we went to some crazy places. I mean, Turkey, Bulgaria, Estonia. Estonia. Yeah. And that uh, those days are done. They ended up having a downsize, and the photographer has to write the story, or the writer, Mm -hmm. the writer. Yep. But Um, man, good party moments. What about that night in Estonia where those those homies, the distributors, threw us a party? That was such a good night. One of the best (laughs) nights of my life. And why is that? (laughs) We. Mark Frank was on the trip and he stayed home and we were uh, our guide happened to be the biggest rapper in Estonia he's yeah. the only person in Estonia I think to make it on MTV rest in peace yeah, rest in peace rest in peace he was a legend he passed away of skin cancer like really soon after our trip it was kind of crazy well he that one day he went to the doctor's yeah. office to Had get it checked, checked. Yeah. And he was he was gone like within a year yep just get your skin checked if you got any issues is the the moral but he threw this big party for us <laughs> And uh, we walk in the door, and I'm wearing a bunch of Tech Nine stuff, and someone yells MFM, <laughs> and I just go yes, and, they, and then I got whisked off. Dude, literally, I was right behind Eastone, and they go Montoya, yeah. and Eastone puts his arms up, and he was gone. Like he went up to like the VIP lounge yeah, the whole night. Gone. And at almost every trip you go on, the community takes you in like that, and it's such an incredible thing. Yeah, and uh, it's it's just. It's priceless. It makes for the best party nights ever. Because they're all shredders. Like yeah. it, it wasn't that they were even fanning out. They were just so psyched that you we come would to their even, country. We would even go to their country to, yeah. to shoot street stuff. You know, that it's was one of the a, funnest trips. Yeah, ever. cool thing to experience. And it's yeah, it's not because they're fanning out. They're just so hyped. You recognize their country and their snowboard scene. Yeah. And uh, we've had a couple of those nights in some different countries. Remember when those guys got naked and did the uh, Abbey Road? Abbey Road for for him and I. <laughs> What country was that? That was Bulgaria. Bulgaria. Yeah. A bunch was... of dudes that were on vacation from uh, from the UK. Yeah, from London. They wanted us to take their picture doing Abbey Road, the Beatles. We'd walk across the street in the yeah. crosswalk. And, and they just go to T-Bird like, should we take our clothes off, mate? <laughs> I was T-Bird, like, yes. Yes, you should Definitely. for sure. And they all got buck naked and did Abbey Road. Fun fact, that story is now in the cloud. It's so, in the cloud. Yeah, it's up yeah. there. It's, it's somewhere it's, in there. It's, yeah, it's literally Which means it's gone forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, earlier what you were just talking about on our Patreon interview, I thought you had a very eloquent answer. And we asked you, what is your biggest inspiration? 
and it's the snowboard community worldwide. What I've learned, because I've, I've done a lot of international features. I've tried to do one a year when I worked at Snowboarder. And uh, I, I, want, I want to make, that's what I want my book to be maybe, is like to enter every different city I went to, kind of put every international city put into a book. But we've gone to all these amazing cities, and every single one of them, somebody basically halts their life. And I don't even know how they do it. They just jump in the van, Some sit, sometimes even drive the van, and they uh, drop everything and just make sure you have a good time, and they introduce you to the local shop, the local kids that rip, take you into their life, sometimes their house, to let you crash at the house, and they open open the door for you for that country and just show you what that country is all about. And it's just because of snowboarding, nothing else. It's not not because they're fanning out like we were saying. It's just because they're so hyped to show you their scene and their slice of snowboarding. And uh, what's funny is one time I got a call from – uh, Japanese magazine that these Japanese shredders were coming over and uh, they just asked me to if I could maybe give them a list of spots and uh, they showed up and I picked them up from the airport with with uh, Lucas Magoon and Chris Bradshaw and spent the whole week with these dudes and showed them every spot and shredded with them and I did it because when I go to Japan they do that for me and uh, I wanted to give back one time, you know. I was going to say it's all reciprocal. Yeah, it's they, all reciprocal. They do it for you because you would do it for them. It's yeah. Like it's, it's, it's a respect thing that, like, you're coming to my zone. I'm going to show you the time of your life. Yeah. And when you go to Japan, they're going to show you the time of, of your life. Now that I'm older, it's a little harder to show them the, <laughs> the party side and all that. But hopefully the young people are doing that. And I'm oh, yeah. sure, like, the dust box is doing that for people. And, yep. and uh, but, yeah, every single country, people just... When you go to Italy, they're showing you their uncle that makes wine, and then they give you bottles of that wine. In Russia, the kid had never driven before because they always take uh, the subway, but he drove our van, almost killed us. <laughs> but it's just they do any, anything and everything for you. And, and some of these guys still hit me up, which is sick, on uh, DMs and all that. But let's send an air horn out for every guy that ever has taken a crew out because – those people are the best. Absolutely. Well, and, and props to Tech Nine because I remember Tech Nine was always at the forefront of like finding the new spots, and because of that, you went to some like wild locations. I remember like you know the the I was sitting at the desk as the associate editor of Snowboarder. Oh yeah, Easton just went to Poland, and then they went to Estonia. Like you guys were always finding really interesting zones to go ride. Yeah, back before global warming, unfortunately, you could, there was a lot more cities you could go to. Yep. And, uh, like, first, I think we were the first crew to go to Moscow. And, uh, I mean, Chris got a taste of it, went to uh, Lithuania. Kazakhstan? Kazakhstan. But well, that was that after, was after Tech yeah. 9, yep. but, but with uh, kind of the T9 the crew. The Tech 9 crew, yeah. Yeah, we went to uh, Lithuania. And, and, yeah, just every, we try to go just hit that new spot in those Euro cities, man. They have the best shit to hit. I got a perfect question that is right along the lines of the topic we're talking about. And this is from none other than Cole Taylor. The your, big dog. Your partner in crime. Here we go. Yo, what up, Stone? It's Cole. I miss you, bro. So we've traveled all over the world together, shared tons of amazing memories, and uh, I just want to know, what's your, what's your number one pick for a street trip that we've been on together? And also, which trip provided the best food? Because we both <laughs> love to eat, and we both love the experience of of breaking bread in other countries. So I want to know what's your number one. So number one trip or best food? I think it, that's a two-parter. It's a two-parter. Two yeah. Um, man, every trip was so sick because they're all so different and so 
so rad and the cities are so cool to go to so it's hard to pick that one without reflecting for a moment you can't really louis veto us you can, i'm not you gonna, gotta louis pick, veto you gotta you. pick one i'll start with food because i know that one right away <clears throat> italy without a doubt yep um i mean italy is known for their cuisine but we had this setup where we were staying in uh where'd they have the olympics turin torino yeah torino yep so we we're in torino and it's like this mountain town and the uh the city closes down early there. They kind of got different rules for eating over in Europe. Like every time you go, it takes like three hours for dinner and even lunch. And But we would go shoot all day. And by the time we got home to the city, everything was closed. So we were so bummed. But we met this dude who owned a restaurant. His name was Rocco. And uh, he would, we'd call him. He'd be like, call me before, like when you're on your way home. And this dude would cook like a family style Italian dinner, something different every time. And we would just call and be like, hey, we're on our way. And we'd get into this restaurant, and every dinner was just amazing. And Lucas liked his French fries, so the dude would always make French fries for Lucas McCoon. <laughs> <laughs> so Lucas would just have a huge plate of spaghetti and French fries. And But then Cole and I, he would always just have some sick local dish for us and, like, wine that was made right there. And it was incredible. This, the guy was, like, family with us. It was awesome. So that was the food um, for the best trip. I might say uh, probably that first trip to Moscow was very memorable just because that place was crazy. The food was horrible. Um, but just uh, being like seeing something that's just so different than we're used to and being in the city that was that was just crazy. Like you would drive for for, I don't know, like three hours and we'd be like, where are we now? Moscow. And then you drive like another three hours the other way. What city is this? Moscow. And then you'd see all these people walking around. They're only wearing, like, black clothes. And, and then you see them in breakfast drinking vodka. Just be like, and we'd be like, why are they drinking all the time? It's so cold here. You have to. And it's just so different that I think that was uh, one of the top top trips. And also because I battled a bunch of MCs one day on the, on the, <laughs> on the bike in Moscow. That was pretty dope. They were rapping in Russian. I was doing Jamaican dance hall. But we we were able to get a taste of, like, like I said, our guide never uh, drove, and he took us on the subways. And the subways in Moscow, they made them, like, super, super dope because they want the working people to be uplifted. So when you go down in the subway, there's, like, all, like, these murals that are handmade that are just, like, the most incredible thing. So it was cool to, like, see all that. And I remember we were with Stevie Bell, and he sees this black dude, sees him from across the way, and, like, makes his way to him and hugs him. And Stevie's all taken aback. He's like, you're the first black man I've seen in, in 10 years or something. It was just like, holy, it was just cool moments like that that were uh, just really eye-opening of how the world's so different, you know? Love that. And even along those lines, I love how when you start talking about, like, the experience of the trip, what, you know, a lot of times people are on the trip, they're like, well, I landed a back lip and I did a front 270. <laughs> and, like, and they forget to take in all the things that you're talking yeah. about. And that's what, that's what these, what snowboarding, the gift it gives you. You get to go to these places and, sure, you get to do a front 270. You get to back seven and jump. That's great. But you also get to experience all this culture. And that's what always stood out to me being on trips with you. Like, even recalling trips like uh, when we went to Kazakhstan, you're like, in detail, remember like the fucking horse milk or whatever. What, like, what was it like? That was, uh, wasn't it made from horse, uh, horse milk? Yeah, yeah. They uh, they would milk the horse and they put it in a bag, mm -hmm. and to get it to ferment, 
everyone who walks by their house has to punch it. Yes. <laughs> so when you see a bag hanging at somebody's crib, you got to punch it. How do you milk a horse? Uh, Is it semen? It's, it's a, <laughs> It, was it horse semen? It might be semen. <laughs> it I don't might know. Be semen. <laughs> Who knows? But <laughs> <laughs> it's called kumis. Yeah. So maybe it is cum. Whoa. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Were we drinking horse semen? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not, dude. <laughs> no, but it's funny. Like going back to when when the magazine could send me to write and Stone to to shoot photos. I remember never really writing about the action. Yeah. Because my philosophy was that's what the photos are for. Eastone's photos are going to tell the action story. Yep. So I could always find a really cool angle of, of a experience that we had together or a person that I met and you could like go off in a different direction with the story. You could talk more about the location, the location. than like the spots. You taught you know? me that with writing. It was well. a really like beautiful time in snowboard journalism. It was cool. So I also remember like our trip to Kazakhstan. I was one of them. Every one of them was like the best. Yeah. You know? So it's so hard to pinpoint when our trips were the best. <clears throat> I remember talking to Stone Every time he would come home from a trip, I would ask him, like, hey, how was the trip? And he would always talk about the food. I remember the butter steak. Remember the butter steak? Oh, the butter steak. I call Stone. I'm like, yo, how was Japan? He's like, dude, Cole and I got the most banger butter steak. <laughs> and was, at the, it's at the Korean hibachis yeah. in Japan. What they is They serve butter? up this super dope high end. It's probably that wag. What's this? No, the Kobe. Kobe beef. Probably some Kobe beef. Yeah. And they put it on there with a bunch of butter on it. It comes, like, raw with butter, and you put it, cook it yourself. Melts in the mouth, this butter steak. Oh, man, that's making me hungry. <laughs> Let's order up some butter steak. Yeah, but all those trips are dope. All right, Stoney. We're going to hit you with another Patreon question. This one's coming from Cody Ferner. Back in the Tech 9 days, if there was one rider you could have put on the team but didn't have the chance to, who would that rider be? We got every rider we wanted, dog. <laughs> <laughs> we had Mark Frank, Was there anyone, anybody you had your eye on that you would have been like, Shit, man. If we wanted them, we got them. Because we didn't, I'm talking back in the binding days, it was easy. We had anyone who wanted bindings. We had people that weren't even on the team list that were big dogs. Yep. Um, but let's think here. Someone we'd always wanted on the team but couldn't get. Um, I'm coming up on a blank here, dog. Cole was a TM. I'm sure there's someone that he probably tried to uh, get on the team and it didn't work out. But uh, I mean, in trying to think, uh, what what set what years of Tech Nine would we go go with here? I mean, we're talking the whole the whole kit, the maybe, whole, maybe the board whole gamut, outerwear. Yeah. yeah. Um, what what year was that? Two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Yeah, I'm gonna go 05 to 08. Who, who was hot back in those days? I mean. Nobody really comes to mind. I'm going to be straight up honest. That's all good. Yeah. That's chill. I mean, you guys had Bradshaw and Gooner, and those are two riders that, like, I don't know if you can really state to the audience, like, how influential those two riders were to the brand. They were also a handful, too, so it was hard to uh, be on <laughs> them. You know what I mean? It was hard to get. Oh, you know, actually, I got an answer for someone we wanted back in the day. Who is it? We weren't able to get Paxson. We wanted Paxson on the team. Um, I mean, and a lot of people listening to this probably don't even know who he is, but back, back in that time, Johnny Paxson was going places. Johnny P was the man. Yeah. And we actually tried to get him on and it didn't work out. And, uh, in hindsight, maybe it would have worked out better for him if, if he got on. But, but you guys still brought him up. Yeah. We still ended up shooting with him and, yeah. and shooting, shooting him with the video and photos. But yeah, so he was probably the answer of a guy that we tried to get on and didn't work out. But so Lucas and Bradshaw, yeah, they were... 
really something special. Having those guys on the team and traveling with them was just the best. Bradshaw was a little tough because it was hard to get him out of Big Bear, which is probably a thing for all of his sponsors. Um, like every year they would beg us to get Bradshaw to Japan. And he like, sometimes we even book him a ticket and he just wouldn't go. Because <laughs> <laughs> weed's illegal, not legal over there. And that was like something very important to him on trips to function, to snowboard well. Uh, but Lucas was always down to go and they just loved him over there. And, and he uh, ended up meeting like the president of uh, Maneuver Line, who was our distributor. And this guy's like in a suit and can't even speak English. And him and Lucas were just best friends. Like, <laughs> they couldn't even talk to each other. And this guy, like, probably didn't even snowboard, you know. He was just, like, a businessman, just loved Lucas Magoon. Um, and uh, those guys were just larger than life. Their personalities, their style, their riding. And to be able to have, like, do Lucas's first pro models and all that. And he always had such good ideas. You sit him and Dolman down. Like, Lucas would describe an idea to me, and it would hardly even make sense. And then him and Dolman would just create, like, the most banger graphics, like some of my favorite graphics. And, uh, yeah, those guys were a treat. And how are you balancing being a senior for Snowboarder and also a company owner? You know, being on the inside at Snowboarder, I always thought you did it perfectly. Like, you did it really, really well working for both brands. Well, on the Tech9 side, it was nice because it was such an advantage that I was able to get the coverage needed for our team. Um, I mean, some brands couldn't even pay money to make that happen, like the amount of coverage we were able to get them. And uh, so that was always seen as a great asset. And uh, so no one gave me too much grief when I had to also go shoot other people. And in order to make it work for Snowboarder, I couldn't just shoot the Tech 9 team. But um, at one point, Tech 9 was like a conglomerate of brands too, so it was a lot more people. I was able to work with when we had a tech nine section and uh, we almost even at one point we tried to work out something with Danny Cass and grenade involved, but that didn't work out, but we had like a conglomerate of brands. So there was more people. Simone's brand was involved. And uh, so that was a lot of people I could go with like Simone and JP and Jeremy and Sexton on a trip. And that was also working for tech nine because no miss was part of the brand family. And, uh, yeah, so it all would just work out. And, and so I would have to, for snowboarder, shoot other people. And that was understood at Tech 9 and kind of double dipping. Yeah, smart. Little bit of double dipping. Now, all the, you've shot so many photos over the years of so many incredible riders. Now, who's your favorite person to shoot and why? Damn. I'm going to go with Lucas Magoon. Quick answer. That's, a, that's, that's actually the correct answer. That's 100% <laughs> I, I, I could have went MFM. That would have also been. That would also been, yeah. but. Because Marco was dope, and in the early years, we traveled the world together, went to a lot of dope spots. But uh, Lucas, man, he just, he's one of those dudes, when the camera's on him, he just shines. And uh, even just shooting a lifestyle of him, he just comes alive when you point the lens at him. And uh, his snowboarding was just next level at the time, so it was just so easy to get hammers of him. And he's just so fun to cruise around with because he's such a wild dude, so he'd be my favorite. Going back to MFM real quick, this is just me personally. There's so much like legend and lore behind MFM on a snowboard. It's hard. It's hard to describe like how talented and powerful that dude was. Was there ever a time where you saw Marco do something like absolutely batshit on a snowboard that you just didn't think was even possible? I mean, for sure. But the first time I met Marco at Vale, he showed up to Vale 
and he had this ponytail down to his ass. <laughs> <laughs> and you see this Mexican with like the most attitude of any dude you'd ever seen. And you can like see, hear him coming a mile away, just yelling and yipping and yapping. And I seen him doing Ollie that was probably like six feet high. And I was just like, dude, who the fuck is this guy? And then later that night, we met him at a party, and it was Mark Frank. And so that, I just knew that dude had was something special just the second you see him, you know? And then over the years, shooting with him, um, some of those just big ollies he would do. Even in, like, you get into Alaska, he'll just go off a cornice and do some giant ollie no grab with just the biggest one you'd ever seen. And I'd say some of those were probably just, just amazing. Just the style, anything he did. He just looked dope. Great answer. Great answer. Now, I know over the years you spent so much time going over to, to Japan, buds, right? Like that's like a, your, your home away from home. Probably been there like I don't even – uncountable times maybe, 12, 13 times. Now, there is one particular instance with uh, Jeffy. Yes. And do you want to talk about that situation? I'm, I'm down. I, pro- I never really even told this story in full probably. Um, but, yeah, that's a – that's a story we can we can get into. Yeah. So uh, we're in Japan, and uh, it's kind of weird, man. I blacked this out for a long time until maybe even last week, like the full story of what happened because it was so wild. Um, we were in Japan, and I didn't know this until last week. For the it was for the Toyota Open or something, and uh, sickest day. Marco won the U.S. Open or the to- Toyota Open, which I just remembered last week. He. Uh, it was huge, like this giant contest that pretty much every pro was there. We're in uh, Main Island, Japan, and Marco wins his contest. Ends up being Blue's birthday, so we went and just had the sickest night. And uh, I had never really become good friends with Jeffy. I kind of, he was best friends with all my friends, but we had never really hung out. And so that night, all of a sudden, we just started hanging out, and we, like, clicked kind of that... uh that uh, what's that movie Will Ferrell when they step become brothers. step brothers? That moment, like we just became best friends. We pretty much had that moment, and uh, we were up super late at night, partying for Blue's birthday. And I think it ended up being Jeffy, Blue, and myself were the last three men standing. Pretty much, it's probably like I don't know, well into the night, like three a.m. or something. Blue goes to bed. I had been filming everything that night on like a vhx i think or even smaller just a little mini camera jeffy asked me to uh film him there is uh it's not a spiral staircase it's like a a square one so it goes like down a half floor and around but it's all open in the middle that makes sense (coughs) so he asked me to film him kind of slide on his butt down the spiral staircase but we were on the sixth floor so we were pretty high up but it was literally like five Five stairs, seven stairs maybe, because it's like a half floor. So he does so, and I film him, and he catches his butt on the closeout and falls into the the spiral staircase or the square staircase and falls six floors down. And uh, obviously, like, I heard him kind of bang around, like, pinball down there, basically. So I ran down to the bottom, and uh, I'll never forget the image of just the blood. It's all good, buddy. I didn't think I was going to cry. <laughs> Whew. 
I thought I was past growing on it. It's okay, bud. Yeah, it's part of it, man. It's okay, bud. It was like 20 years ago. I thought I was able to tell it. But yeah, the blood, it was crazy. Um, just coming out from his head. And uh, I knew he was dead, like like then. They tried to do, uh, like, resuscitation, but, like, I could see that he was gone, like, leaving. But, but I told him I had to leave him. And uh, let me pull it together for a second. It's okay, yep. bud. Take your time. It's okay. I got this. <laughs> you got this. Yep. <coughs> so I told him I had to leave him and uh, go get help because obviously I was the only one there. Um, I think first I made a shitload of noise because I knew Blue was probably still up. and uh, Or I might have even ran up six back. I ran back up the six floors and banged on Blue's door, blamed on Marco's door, like screaming bloody murder pretty much. And... Uh, Told those guys to go down to him, you know. And then I ran to the front desk and had them call the ambulance. And, uh, you know, it took them a while to can't come. And they still, like, I know Blue tried to resuscitate him. But, I mean, it was there was so much blood. There, there was no way with a head injury like that. And so far, you know, it's like, I mean, how far is six floors? It's like 60 feet. Yeah, it's like 60 feet. There's, yeah. there's no way. Um, so, unfortunately... They still, like, resuscitate him and did the work on him. And uh, Billy was staying somewhere else, his brother, so they had to call him and uh, get him there, which we did. And, uh, I mean, everyone was staying at the same hotel. So there was, like, I know, like, DCP and Roman were there trying to help them because they were on the same team together. Marco had us all, like, saying a prayer. Blotto was there. Um, just every homie, pretty much. I remember Ika was, like, shit, he was probably, like, just a kid, like, a thing Every time I saw Ika for, like, the next 10 years, like, every time he saw me, he'd just start crying because it was so damaging, you know, like, everyone seeing someone pass. And uh, so he basically, you know, he wasn't going to make it. He, he passed away. I mean, I think they finally pronounced him dead at the hospital. I think Bjorn and his brother, like, rode with him there. But it was before that because I think you have to do um, resuscitation when an ambulance shows up. Um, so he didn't make it. And what was crazy is the next day, or even that next morning, the police told me not to leave because I was the only one with them. So they were like, we just need you to stay in Japan, basically, until further notice. Um, so some very nice lady, like, helped me translate with the police. I had to sit down and get interrogated by, like, I think, like, 12 police. And it was crazy because um, I was basically in shock. And... The police interrogated me, and I told the whole story, and they were just like, "Yeah, don't leave," because they, you know, they have to look at it as murder or what is what's going on. And uh, I finally remembered I had filmed it, and so I just gave them the tape. I never watched it. I gave them the tape, and then they saw it and saw what happened. So they were like, "All right, you're good." So we were able to. Uh, I was able to then leave there. Um, interesting story, I guess. Billy Billy told me this. Um, at his uh, funeral, his uh, they gave Billy, like, his effects after, like, all his stuff. And his watch was ticking when still. And then um, it ticked the whole way until they pulled into his driveway. And then it stopped ticking when he got home, which is kind of crazy. 
And afterwards, uh, you know, there was this great ceremony forum in Mammoth, and it was super cool. Billy, like, invited me out there to stay with them and all that, so I went out there and gave them the camera, and uh, no one ever watched it. I think he said he destroyed it, but then I think they maybe have it, but just never watched it, just put it on the side because it's such a gnarly thing. So I gave him, like, the tape or whatever. Just so that would never, never be a thing. Like nobody needs to see. I guess. Did you did you actively notice the process of you just kind of burying that? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, my wife told me for so long. You know, it was crazy. Actually, she uh, she was at home, and at the time difference, someone like posted online that Jeffy had passed away, and she knew I was at the same place he was at. So she called me like that night. And just, it was gnarly. Yep. And, uh, but yeah, she would tell, tell me that, that I, uh, would like full PTSD, like just wake up screaming or not screaming, but like yelling and crying and just like in my sleeve, just gnarly. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what happened over there. Yeah. The fuck I, I gotta, yeah. Sorry, buds. <clears throat> Kind of like that story you always hear about people going off, having fun. and But, you know, what's cool is that a long time after Billy, I felt like maybe resented me or, like, couldn't talk to me. And uh, last week, I hit him up to tell him. I mean, we we, bumped, we ended up getting, uh, I don't know how many years ago, maybe like four years ago or something, we just happened to be put next to each other on an airplane. And... Uh, we were able to sit and talk, and we had this great conversation. And uh, I think it was good for both of us, you know, because we'd like, I'd see him around, and we wouldn't really say what's up to each other. And it could have just been me. I have no idea. But it could have also been him being like, how come you didn't stop him? You know, weren't you that, you were there with him. Why didn't you tell him not to do that? But last week, he was just like, dude, we know, we all know Jeffy. Like, he's going to do what he's going to do. There's You're not going to stop Jeffy from doing something. So it was cool to hear that from him. And we had a cool conversation, and, and he, like, told me it was cool to, I just wanted to tell him I was going to tell the story and all that. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, I mean, Jeffy was an awesome dude, and we just became best friends that night. But it, it was awesome to hang with him up until then. And, you know, we lost an important person in snowboarding, and it affected so many people. What's crazy is I blacked out all the people that it actually affected also. You know, it was crazy. Like, I didn't know how it affected Blue. Totally forgot Blue was there. It was his birthday <laughs> until he told me. Yeah. So, yeah, I just basically buried a lot of it. Um, I probably should have, I mean, PTSD wasn't like a thing back then, maybe, I guess, less talked about. I remember Angie said, like, she told my dad, like, you need to call Ethan, something crazy just happened to him in Japan. He's like, why? What do I need to call him? Like, it was just how things were back mm-hmm. then, you know? Yeah. There's a couple things there, but, you know, one thing with Jeffy that, like, obviously touched everybody's life incredibly, lived a hell of a, hell of a life, and uh, uh, one could, this is like so in- insignificant, but the the Jeff Anderson Memorial Skateboard Park in Mammoth, sick, yeah, is one of the best skateboard parks in the world, and it was built in his memory. And and um, if you're ever in Mammoth, be sure to be sure to check that out. And and even furthermore, too, I, I thought earlier you had a quote that because um, you've been through you've been through some hard times, you yeah, know? and and losing J two, yeah, that was harsh. And like you know, losing J two, I know it was like. You you went into a depression afterwards, right? Yeah. Losing a best friend. It was probably compounded all the different people you lose as you get older. You start yeah. to lose more people. 
between suicide and cancer and but yeah, when twos passed, I definitely for like a month just like crawled into a ball in my basement and uh just slept pretty much, which is not the right way to handle it. Came out of it all good, but I think it was just compounded, you know, it's like mm-hmm. compound interest on drama, people passing. Yep. And uh twos was definitely a best friend, so that was a, a definitely a tough loss. But it also maybe like came back to like Jeffy too, you know, who knows? Now, when you when you lose people, I think the only way to really uh, be able to carry on is you kind of have to find some type of like spirituality or, or understanding of it in a different way than um, have you have you like what how have you processed some of that stuff? I mean, now you know, thinking on twos and my sister passes, you know, cancer. Yep. Um, I kind of started thinking, you know, we're all going to die. No, none of us are getting out of here alive, right? If your time's earlier, your time's earlier. I really think that in J2 passing, I had these moments where I, I really saw, I was with him, you know, like up, up till the end. And you, you start to see these moments, like even with Jeffy, like in his eyes, I could tell he was going to die, you know, like you knew he was leaving. And with twos, hearing him talk, I he was, like, talking to God, it sounded like, or another person that was going to guide him to this next place. And seeing that kind of really made me think, like, there's something after life. There has to be. We all die. We're all going to go through this. And uh, something is after. So when it happens, it's going to happen, I guess. And so maybe... You don't have to get so bummed. The drama of Jeffy, like, seeing it and all the blood, I think, was a little different. Mm-hmm. And uh, seeing twos in that state was hard, like, as he was all skinny from cancer. But we're all going to get there, I guess, so. Do you, do you remember specifically some of the stuff twos was saying? Yeah, I do. There was one moment where he was, it was crazy. He would sit there, and he'd, like, focus on you. And then he'd all of a sudden look past you, like he was seeing other people. And there was one moment... When he said, like, hey, you're the guy, you're the guy that made all the mountains. And then he would, like, come back and look at you and then come back and be like, don't take his beer, man. He's the dude who made the mountains. Like, say stuff like that. And and you could tell he was, like, looking at somebody, like, talking to somebody. And he kept, like, moving his arms and reaching at something. And uh, it just was very obvious that he was talking to someone. And the conversation was loose, like lucid with that person. And then he'd fade back in and not be very lucid with you, but then be lucid with who else, whoever he was talking to. And it sounded like that person was kind of guiding them to the next, the next stage, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, something's got to be there. I mean, if you think about how small we are in the grand, grand, grand scheme of things, Something's going on. Yeah, something I don't, I don't know what it on. is. I'm not a religious person, you know, no offense to anyone, but I, I just have never believed in it. But yeah. there's something going on, whether it's, gotta it's be, right? molecular or spiritual or, yeah, I don't really know where to put a finger on it. The only people who know the answer are the people who have passed. Yeah, well, look, and they... Look, Look, Maybe they'll tell you. I don't know. <laughs> well, look at. I mean, I think. I think there's there's signs everywhere if you're looking for them. But going back to to there, like when you look at J two and the way I process this, he's on both sides of the veil. You know, he's on both sides of the veil. He's 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 and and fucking. How do you explain a a white dude named E Stone that has a 
gets possessed by a Jamaican yeah, dance true. hall <laughs> that has no training whatsoever. So I don't know. I, I view that yeah. as like somebody in a past life, you know, yeah, exactly. and however so you want to process it's fine. And, yeah. and so like, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of, um, of hard times that come with people passing and you have a, a you had a great quote that I thought would be very fitting for somebody oh, yeah. that's, that's going through some stuff like this. And the quote is, if you're going through hell, keep going. And that's by Winston Churchill. And the first time I heard that, that definitely resonated with me. Because, you know, you're having these hard times. Good times are around the corner. They always are. Usually uh, you get so sucked into what's going on that's negative, and you can't see your way past that. And it maybe it'll make you sleep in the basement for <laughs> for a month like I did, but... The uh, the good times are right around the corner, so that quote definitely resonates. And mm-hmm. hopefully, if you're having depressed times, like just keep that in mind. There, uh, good times are always around the corner. Well said, well said. And another another like you know positive side to people passing is the people that are left behind tend to value life more and and put like it brings them closer. Brings right? them have, closer. You, yeah. Have you experienced that in, in any of that? Uh, well, with twos. I mean, we had this awesome, awesome uh, ceremony after at Brighton that got, like, all his homies together. And then uh, we're having Tuesday, which uh, by the time this comes out will be done. But on 2 um, everyone's getting together again, which is awesome. And, uh, I mean, that's bringing people together that haven't seen each other in 20 years sometimes. And all the people from the Colorado days – People that knew him from the East Coast, people that were old pro buddies like Dale Rayberg and Whitey and just everyone coming out together and twos his name and getting to hang out for a day. So that's usually at the at the funerals. You get together with all these people, you're maybe too sad to realize it, but you know, enjoy that time because you're seeing people maybe you haven't seen in a while. Well, and it's like, you know, in the last twenty years, snowboarding has seen a lot of loss. You know, even more so even more so recently. Yeah. Right? The thing is that we belong to a community that you don't have to know the person for them to care about you. You you know you have a support system in the snowboarding community regardless of if you've ever met that person. And that's something that you kind of need to remember. If you're yeah. a snowboarder, you're part of a family no matter what. No matter what level you're at, no matter where you live, you can always kind of find a little bit of solace in this awesome little thing that we have. That's that's kind of what I keep in mind, you know, with the, the Jeffies, the Jaegers, the, the Dillons, and the people that we've lost is like they've lived 20 lifetimes in the span of one. Facts. They leave behind 20 lifetimes worth of loss when they leave, but it can bring us together, and we can, we can find a little bit of peace in that by being with each other. And people that are down, they got to remember, reach out to snowboarders because they will help you. Yep. Just uh, say what up to a snowboarder that you don't know, make a new friend. DM them. Yeah, DM them. I mean, I answer every DM that comes across my my uh, phone. It's mm-hmm. hit anybody up because I'm sure someone will be there for you if you need it. We don't need any more loss like that. But yeah, the community's here, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of love, and you just gotta ask for it, I guess, if you need it. Yeah. Another like kind of point on on the topic of some of this stuff too is I think that you know I just gotta share like from a personal experience. I went through some hard times. And I've picked up the phone and I've called you. Mm-hmm. When we we first started the show, I was in a, not a great place, and I was, I would pick up the phone and call Bud every night and talk to him for three fucking hours. <laughs> and I'm a talker, as you guys know. If anybody listens to the fucking show, obviously, but 
it takes somebody that's like gone through hard times to understand, you know, you have some friends that are like, I'm, I'm here for you, dog. Just call me. And then you call them and, like, and they don't answer. Just they call ghost me. You. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. And then, but you just pick up and you're just there for me a hundred percent. And that's just like something that I just have to highlight, like being a good friend and a good person is like it. Like I'll never forget that. I knew you life. needed it, and so yeah. I was there. And yeah. it's important to be there. It's important to be there for your friends. Yeah, and if you're not, you, you aren't maybe that tight of a friend. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, maybe yeah. some people just aren't good at it. Who knows? But well, maybe they haven't gone through hard times. Yeah, and they don't know how bad you need it. Yeah, how you know that people need it. You got to do it. Mm-hmm. My chick was there for me during that Jeffy thing, and got me through it. And thank you, Angie. And uh, so I would do that for anyone else. You know. Yep. Well, along those lines, um, I know you had another wild experience being over in Japan uh, with the Tech Nine crew too, dude. Very wild. Um, so we were in Japan on a Tech Nine trip. We actually went over there. We were going to do a video premiere of maybe Familia Two. I want to say. Um, I could be wrong on the video. I don't know, but we had a full Tech Nine crew. Our distributors actually flew us out. Or we we're going to do like a team demo too, which was going to be really cool at a resort. And combo it as a FODT filming trip. And uh, we happened to be over there during the Fukushima thing, which was the tsunami. Damn. An earthquake. And not only we were over there, we were actually shooting the moment it happened. We were in the streets. And we were, I'll never forget it, we were shooting at a Japan cemetery, which you guys have been there. They're very sacred. A lot of times your guide doesn't even want you messing around. It's like a temple. Well, it was more like... Um, it was one of those little towns. Yep. So it was like a cemetery up top, and there was like this shrine down bottom. And uh, up top is where they were dropping in, and they were actually dropping in through the cemetery. And then the landing was right next to the shrine. And the guides are always very hesitant about riding over sacred gra- ground and all that, but they decided it was okay. And uh, so we're having a session um jake divine ends up getting hurt we later find out when he gets home he like broke his neck and uh we didn't even know that till he got home and so he ended up chilling he didn't need to go to the hospital right away he felt okay lucas starts shredding and uh lucas is in mid-session and all of a sudden like i started getting nauseous and i guess that happens when an earthquake hits because your uh equilibrium gets weird and uh Nauseous to the point where everyone fell down to their knees, kind of, at the same time. Lucas had just dropped to and hurt himself, and everyone started feeling weird and fell over. And I remember looking at the mountains and seeing the trees, like, going, and, like, so much you could hear them. And then, turns out Lucas is, like, hurt, hurt. Like, his knee is hurt. And then the uh, guides start freaking out because they didn't know what was going on. We had no communication. Phones weren't working. And they thought that because we were snowboarding on the cemetery that um, something weird was happening. Like ghosts were messing with us. Like they were 100% convinced. And so they made us all get over to that shrine and start like praying on it. And then all of a sudden we all got nauseous again and another earthquake hit. We later found out it was an earthquake. And they started reading on the shrine that there was this big accident, train accident there. And, like, 20 people died, and they were all buried up top. So they were, like, 100% convinced that that's what was happening. And then uh, later we get to the hospital with two hurt riders, and uh, 
everyone's going nuts and we're looking at the screens and the tsunami. We're, we're seeing footage of that and realize what's going on. And we're just tripped out. We see on the news, like the spot we were at yes, the day before um, was like this mountain pass and the earthquake buried the whole pass. Like had we been there that day, we all probably would have died, which is crazy. And uh, we ended up getting back to our hospital or our hotel after the hospital. We found out Lucas blew his knee out. Jake was like broke part of his neck. But you couldn't even – phones still weren't even really working, and uh, all the bridges were closed, so you couldn't even, like, go back to Tokyo or anything. So we just had to sit tight at our hotel. And the aftershocks were crazy, like almost gnarlier than the, the first ones. And uh, middle of the night, that first night, we were kind of staying on this, like, 10-level uh, hotel on a cliff. It was like one of those Cali-looking things on a cliff that just looked so Damn. sketchy. And we're, we had no choice but to sleep there because all the bridges and stuff were closed. And uh, middle of the night, the whole place starts shaking, and, like, this alarm goes off, and we had to evacuate the hotel. Like, we got word that everyone needed to be outside of the hotel for, like, two hours, and we get out there. Um, it was to the point it was shaking so much, like, people were thrown out of their beds. So that's what woke us up. It was, like, 3 in the morning. And we get out there. We look around. No Magoon and Divine. <laughs> we fully left them up in there, and we uh, – they were sharing the same room, and they were too hurt to move. They got shaken <laughs> out of their beds. So me and Cole run back in there, and we put them both in uh, – I think we put – oh, there was that, those luggage carts. We put them both in luggage carts and get them out of there. And pretty much the whole time we were there until we left, the ground was shaking at one time or another and just like, when's it going to be bigger? What's going to happen? And uh, we ended up being able to leave – like at our actual deep, the, the airport opened up the day our tickets were, so we had like priority to leave and all that. But we, uh, our, we obviously canceled our event with Maneuver Line, you know. And I went to Maneuver Line, our distributor, and like did a big speech because their office actually got destroyed from the earthquake. But I remember like you go into Seven Eleven and they couldn't deliver food and stuff, so all the shelves were empty. I can pop up some photos of of that that scene. Wow. But it was uh, it was crazy. We pretty much thought like some of the younger dudes on the trip are like trying to get their parents to call the military and get them out, and we're just like, dude, you gotta just chill. Like, you know, we're here, we're with Japan, we're with these people, and and uh, you know, it was had to be very respectful because they were they're very emotional about what had happened. I mean, a lot of people had uh, had you know up in Fukushima where that where you're closer with the tidal wave and all that it was it was gnarly. It was a pretty major thing and no one knew what was going to happen next in tokyo the buildings are made for earthquakes because it, it's there's a lot of earthquakes there i guess so when you're up in those and an earthquake hits that things those buildings like sway and we found out that that's normal and actually safe and they're built like that but that happened in tokyo too i even remember right before our plane took off another earthquake went and we were just like too when we took off we were just like oh man can, uh, I think we, like, kissed the ground when we got home because we thought who knows what was going to happen. You know, it was a crazy, very crazy time to be there. But also, you know, looking back at it, it was it was nice to be there to see what they were going through and kind of realize what it was like in a situation like that. And, and afterwards, there was a big worry about radiation because of Fukushima, and everyone had to have, like, Geiger counters and all that. Like, I remember the guy at Maneuver Line said you had to have them in your apartment and, like, use it daily to make sure things were safe with radiation. And uh, it was just a very gnarly time to be there on a trip. But it was uh, 
you know, I had a lot of good friends over there, so it was nice to know everything was going to be okay when everything opened back up, back up, and we were able to go home and all that. It was definitely an experience. Heavy. That was heavy. And the Japanese culture, it went through so much with so that. So much. But they're so damn resilient. It's, yeah. It's, it's incredible how they were able to, to pick up the pieces. And, and there's such a respectful culture and such a, they're such good people. That it's, uh, you really can learn a lot going over there of how to maybe you should act as well. I remember once I left, different trip, way early when I was like staff photographer for Sims, shooting like Kevin Jones and Teradakitis at this Olympic rail in uh, Nagano or something. I uh, left all my flat, I don't know what was going on, we were drinking, I was excited, Kevin Jones was hitting a rail, you know, with Marco and Kurt Wastel. And I left all my flashes at the rail, <laughs> set up, <laughs> just left the session <laughs> and uh, we're in the car and I'm like freaking out. Like, this is all my equipment, you know, it costs a lot of money. And the guy's just like, don't worry about it. I'm just like, dude, I got to get back to my shit. Got to go get my equipment. Oh, don't worry about it. He's like, if someone has taken them, I will buy you new ones. I was just like, all right. And we get back there, like, I think two days later and my stuff was neatly packed up and folded, put away. Right there by the handrail. And in Japan, people don't steal. Wow. Only in Tokyo where there's like Yakuza and that kind of stuff. But in the mountains, it's like not a Nobody thing. Nobody locks up bikes. Yeah. Nothing like that. I mean, there's there's uh, vending machines with beer in it, and it's an honor system. You know, like when I was young, I would have drained that thing. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> but in Japan, they don't do that. It's like honor oh, no. system. No, I would never, never drink when I'm not old enough. So it's just such a cool culture. It's just something about like it's everything's for the common good, right? Yeah. It's for your fellow man. They're thinking about more than themselves, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, and <clears throat> that's the takeaway that I always take from Japan. You you leave and go home, and you're like, man, that is a special place to, yeah. especially to go snowboard, you know. And the terrain up north in the North Island, the best powder. There's great street spots. It's kind of the spot. Oh, yeah. The 7-Elevens. And 7-Elevens there are next level. Yeah. <laughs> are you a Sevy or a Psycho Mart guy? I'm Savvy all the Sevy way. Savvy all the way. Yeah. States and Japan. States and Lo- Japan. I got Lawson's, too. You can't forget Lawson's. Lawson's. Oh, yeah. yeah, there's a Lawson's. But Savvy, man. So uh, to keep to keep the train moving here, because we've been, we've been chugging along, um, let's, let's kind of dive into, you know, you had Tech 9 for 20 years. Yeah, a long time. You know, time. started it from a freaking hack job binding to full outerwear company to influencing an entire generation of, of snowboarders and, and really carving your own niche and, and having a company that does over 6 million a year in sales and all it's, it's one hell of a run for tech nine. And, and how did that, how did that ultimately um, come to an end? So uh, after uh, I think by the time it ended, we were on like our fourth investor. <laughs> so it's pretty, pretty diluted and like every investor seemed to get worse than the last one on what they expected and what they wanted and the direction they wanted to go so it was getting a little bit I mean I was so into shooting photos I was almost just like maybe it's a good thing maybe it's time to move on but our our last um our last investor basically decided that the brand could go on without Cole and I he was just like and you know and Something you learn in life is, I think, you any any situation in any job, I and mean, you learn this at Snowboarder, the the brand can go on without, but Tech Nine for some reason kind of couldn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
I didn't know it was still a brand. <laughs> well, that's the thing is it, it still kind of is a brand, but it's not really a brand. Okay, um, I didn't know that. It's not like pushing out number. I mean, it just can't. I mean, maybe if they had done it right, maybe, and hired a bunch of the right people, but this guy was like, you know, we'll just cut the team and we'll get rid of Ethan Cole and we'll just still sell. You know, it doesn't work in yeah. snowboarding. There's too much culture around it. Um, they did try to offer Lucas money to stay, thinking like, oh, we need his Lucas, and Lucas told him to F off, and which is pretty sick because a lot of people might have taken the money. Which is why you should buy goon gear. Yeah, goon gear. Straight Support up. goon gear. Straight up. Yeah, that's such a – I mean, a lot of people would have taken the money. It was like good money. He could have – Probably still, who knows what would have happened. I mean, I don't know, but he told him, like, without the crew, it ain't happening. There's and no soul. Yeah. A heart, there's, he, a, there's a brand and a product, but there's nothing behind it. Yeah, and yeah. he knew that this guy wasn't a snowboarder, and I think Lucas knew the direction it would go, you know. And so, at the end, um, that is what, what is demise, but I think it start, the demise started before that. Because in order you get through four investors, there's obviously like a money draw. That's, it, I think in the long run, it's really hard to do a snowboard company being one season, and uh, I think that's why you see the these big companies they are able to pull it off a little more. But then even like Adidas eventually pulls out because they're realizing like, hey, this really isn't adding up, you know. So it's it's really more of a passion, and maybe if you keep it small and you know, Crab Grab, they got a great thing going. They've kept it small. Preston doesn't have a big overhead. And maybe that's the way to do it. If you're someone starting a company, that would be my advice. Yeah. The second you try to maybe grow too big, you're going to have to do things that maybe aren't right for the brand. And then you're going to be headed in the wrong direction and eventually lead to that. Was there ever a point where you were sitting in one of those meetings? I mean, you're like a try. You and Cole are tried and true core snowboarders through and through. Was there any point where you're sitting in there with a bunch of suits being like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, there what? was one meeting with that last investor where he t told me he didn't like me. Like, basically, like, I think you suck. <laughs> like, he basically told me I would fire you if I could, but I don't think I can. And wow. eventually he just got, or no, he actually never fired me. That was the second to last one because he was just not a snowboarder. And me and Cole were always like, you have to do this. You have to do this or you're going to die. And he ended up selling to another guy. That was eventually didn't see how that guy, that guy was smart enough to know that he couldn't get rid of us. But uh, he ended up, we ended up becoming all right with each other because he respected how Cole and I kind of stood our ground. And, but, I mean, when that was happening, it was just kind of like, yeah, this isn't going to, I need to focus more on photography. But, you know, Cole was so passionate with what he had built because he did all the outerwear and kind of handcrafted the team. That was a tough thing. And, uh, I mean, it's tough to see it like your baby but I kind of saw it coming maybe some years out, so I was focusing on photography and and all that. Just It's just such a hard business. It's I don't know if I would advise. I think if we had stuck with just bindings, mm -hmm. that would have maybe, you know, we'd be able to keep the marketing strong and not have to, you know, once you get full head to toe, you got to, like, support these guys' whole life, the riders, or else it's not going to work, you know. So you got to pay some good money. And then even, like, little things people don't think about when Cole's on a trip and someone breaks their board and you get a FedEx on a board, that costs a shitload of money. It's almost like, like 200 bucks or something. You do that 100 times during a season, like, think of the bill. Think of the product bill. What are we talking, like, you don't have to name names, but the highest paid Tech 9 rider was making how much? What are we talking? I don't know, like, like 60K and then royalties on top of that. It's pretty damn good. Yeah. But you had to, you know, they need, and then there's travel budget. 
But so once you sit down there and break down a product budget, a travel budget, and then advertising, I mean, you're getting to some coin, and then you got to be doing some sales. And then when your father's sneaking money out the back door, <laughs> then maybe uh, that's not going to work out. So that's eventually why, like, he ended up not being part of it. He wasn't sneaking money out the back door. He was, like, making extra product, selling it as, like, pre-sell, like, closeouts, and then making the money, keeping the money. So then you, like, get new investors, or investor kind of gets onto that and sees that going down. So he ended up not being part of the company. He was able to, like, sell for a little bit and tried to get us to sell with him, but we were, like, not ready at that time. But, yeah, it's just it's just hard to uh, – the money needed. Like, each investor got to a point where, like, you know, at $3 million, I was able to fund this, but at $4 million, this is just too much money. Like, I don't have the money to do this. So we never had an investor maybe with deep enough pockets. And maybe that was a good thing because – it's you don't want these guys to lose money you know that's a bad scenario so it's just a hard thing running a brand and i think that's the facts what it comes down to anyone doing a board brand you know they're so expensive um i think you have to have really deep pockets to uh make that happen because it's so seasonal and then when you're niche in a niche like tech nine was it even gets harder you know so it's just a hard business now you just briefly kind of breezed over the fact that your dad had a Kind of a sneaky operation going tech nine. Sneaky Pete. Sneaky Pete. He, <laughs> was, going, back he was going sneaky Pete on the back door. Now, what, uh, so what, like, how, what is your guys' relationship? How is that? How, how do you guys stand? You know, I've learned that there's three sides to a story, you know? Yeah. You talk to him, he has a whole different story and, uh, than I have. And, you know, who knows which is right. But we don't have a relationship. Now, we've tried to mend it. And uh, it just never really took. So we haven't talked in like 10 years or something. But, I mean, there's even deeper stuff than that. Like my he didn't, my sister and him didn't talk much. My brother and him don't talk much. So who knows if it's more of Tech 9. But for me, the stuff that he did with Tech 9, when I found out he was like taking extra money and all that, like that was kind of a deal breaker for me. It was hard enough when I saw the credit card. But with all that stuff that my mom had kind of warned me about, um, that was like that was kind of a deal breaker, and then him taking the attitude that he almost denying that he did it, but I knew he did it was kind of just a deal breaker. But like years later, we did we tried to mend it, but just didn't didn't really take. So it is what it is, I guess. Heavy stuff, heavy stuff. Um, well, that being said, I think it's a good time to to change gears into you know you're you're going into photography here, and you got to live one of the greatest eras and shoot one of the greatest eras, at least for photography's sake, of the biggest, gnarliest, heavy progression time periods of all time. That being bit of a digression session going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just going. To, I'd say it's going Style. in a different direction. Yeah, different it's, direction. It's going to, but but back then, you know, we had fucking heavy equipment going. People are hitting huge spots. You should talk about the birth of the the real snow era. Yeah, it was really real snow that pushed it over the edge, I think. Explain, like, what is real snow, too, to people that aren't familiar? Yeah, so real snow is uh, X Games. You know, they wanted to – they've had the X Games for years at this point, and they wanted to kind of get their angle into the street snowboarding to start, and they put up some big money at first. They did it proper Yeah, they did it proper. They really did. And riders had, like, what, a month at first to put a video. They were handpicked – 
And they had the right people behind it too. They had Mac Dog involved and Gunny involved. And right? it was like fifty k. Yeah, like Louis one year one seventy five k seventy five k crazy money. <laughs> yeah, so that amount of money and the uh, you know putting you on the it was on TV as well. So like putting you on that stage as a street rider, and you get an X Games medal and this big check. It really pushed what people were willing to do in these streets. And you got Breezy out there building crazy stuff, jumping off buildings. You got Bodie, Louis. I mean, Chris won a gold medal. It was outrageous. The money eventually thinned up. Give yourself an air horn, bud. A little gold medal. Hit it. Appreciate it. Hit and, it. And they were giving the filmers uh, medals yep. as well. So these filmers, <laughs> yeah, these filmers were like their first time to win a gold medal from X Games. And, man, they were stoked. So they were willing to give it all and go go for broke. And uh, the level of riding just was pushed to the ultimate extreme. And uh, shooting it was awesome because obviously the, the images were going to be really dope. Was there ever a time where you were like, man, if like obviously as a photographer, we always have utmost confidence in the riders, right? You're always like, they're going to land. They're, they're not going to get hurt. Was there ever a time where you're like, Yo, if this goes sideways, it's going to be super bad. There was with Breezy on that building gap in uh, Duluth. Even though the gap wasn't very big as far as how much distance, it was like if you didn't make it, you were there was no way he was going to survive. Yeah. And even for Randy, who was up on the roof pulling the, the rope because we had to do a car pivot, every time he was hitting ice and was worried that he wasn't going to stop in time and – then he would go off this building in the car, basically. And if the rope snapped, it was going to be his fault that Dan died. So, like, he was in tears at one point in the session because he almost he thought the rope broke or something. And I was shooting down in the guts with a wide angle just thinking, like, dude, I'm going to be standing here if something went wrong. And I think even Dan, you know, they had Dan and Bjorn and Krister, uh, Bjorn Linus and Krister Wallace. No, Krister. Chris, was Krister Rawls. Rawls. Yeah, Christopher Rawls. Wallace is Biggie Smalls. That's right. <laughs> Christopher Wallace. We just saw in Duluth, which was dope. They hit this gap, and it was all fun and games to them because it was small and it felt easy, but one wrong move, and it's death. And Dan realized that after, and it was the last one he ever did. Um, this one in Salt Lake here that he shot with Andy Wright, um, kind of by my house in Cottonwood Heights, that one, the distance was so gnarly. It was like one of the earlier ones that he did, like, I can't even believe he did it. It's, mm-hmm. It was it's, the, the Transworld cover. Yeah, the yeah. Transworld cover is yeah. just ridiculous. And back paired with that time, the magazines were thick too. So as a photographer, you were able to make pretty good money as well because um, there were so many advertisers. That was maybe a little earlier than X Games. Like Transworld and Snowboarder at one point, were like they were like phone books almost. And so as a photographer, there was you almost thought of uh, photos – or you thought of, like, purchases in terms of, like, oh, if I sell one photo, I can buy that. Because you'd be able to sell so many ads. And so, yeah, that those days of lots of advertising and into X Games were just really probably the heyday. Because as it's gotten to now, a lot of photographers had to back down because they don't even get money to go on trips. Well, back in the day, we were doing magazines this thick, and there were, like, ten a year. Yeah. You do, like, a resort guide and a summer issue. And, like, and, and over the years, it just got smaller slimmer. And smaller yeah, and every smaller. year a little slimmer yeah. until now where it's, like, some – you can't even get a photographer on a trip because there's no budget for him. Yeah. And there's just crews out there with a filmer, and that's it. And so there's way less photographers than ever – I almost feel like maybe times are about to swap, though. You say everything comes in cycles. I think so, too. 
hopefully, I mean, maybe it's wishful thinking, but maybe we're on that build back up, the Olympic hype. Um, it just seems like there's a new excitement. There's more people than ever at the resorts, so there's obviously more people snowboarding. I mean, it seems that way to me. So I don't know. Hopefully we're on an uptick right now. And one other thing you breezed over, too, uh, talking about X Games. You know who I think we always talk about breezy, but who maybe did just as much crazy shit that doesn't get the shine that you shot just as many photos of is Bodie. Yeah, Bodie. Like, you shot a lot of heavy photos of Bodie. Yeah, Bodie was going ham back then. I mean, he's just such a talented dude. Going out with him, you just always knew it was going to be something awesome. And, uh, yeah, Bodie was able to get some dope covers with him, go on some dope trips. And it was crazy, too. The com- competition level was tough mm-hmm. back then with, like, Breezy and Bodie. And I got caught in some spot drama. So we went to this town in Saskatoon. Um, my homie at Propaganda told me the snow was flying. So I think first I went up there with uh, Bodie. And the um, place was awesome. I think Harrison was with us, yep. too, which was dope. Harrison is the first person that told me about the Perim. Oh, the really? He popularized the Perim. That's so sick. <laughs> yeah, Gordy was up there. Gordy hit a big old closeout out there. But anyways, there was this spot in the middle of the town that you, like, there's no way you can't see it. It's a bridge that was, like, half ripped off, and there's a rail on it. And it was the sickest spot, and everything was perfect. There's no way not to see it. I'm there with Bodie and Cole. And we were supposed to hit it, and uh, Bodie didn't hit it. So I go home from that trip. Two days later, I get a call from Breezy. I'm in Saskatoon. Uh-oh. Got this spot. And I'm like, sick, I'll fly up there. Fly up there. It's the same spot. And what am I going to do? Like, I got to shoot it. You're going to shoot it. I mean, Dan's going to hit it whether I shoot it or not. And uh, it was just spot drama. Like, I had to, like, talk it out with Bodie after. He was, like, all upset. Well, and it was a cover. It was a cover. That added to spot drama. Yeah. I remember being part of the spot drama because it was a cover, right? And, yeah, and I don't remember why we didn't hit it with Bodie. It was like, oh, I think he thought it was going to be too much of a bust or something, but Dan didn't care about bust. Like, Dan <laughs> was just like, whatever, bust. Like, he would just try and weather talk his way out of it, and and Bodie was just a little more calculated and didn't want to spend time getting busted. So, yeah, as a photographer, you get put in positions like that sometimes, and you, it's just hard, but it ended up being a cover. Now, I guess it's years later. Bygones are bygones. Hopefully, no one's still upset about that. Mm-hmm. Bodie, sorry, dog. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, spot drama happens. A couple other quick ones. Uh, we, can you walk us through the – there's a picture on the wall from a Poland train tunnel. <laughs> uh, what happened there, buds? We may have told it on air, but maybe not everybody's heard it. There's actually a lot to happen around that rail. Okay. I think we spent a couple <laughs> days there. Our first time walking in, we uh, it was at a train track. And you, as you always know, those are always, like, heavily fenced off and – Kind of in kind of a sketchy part of town. Um, we're walking up to the spot. There's this car there all fogged up. And Lucas is like peeking in the window. There's people having sex in there. <laughs> and then they, I think they stopped and look up. And Lucas is like staring in. And they just kept going. And wow. We're just like, oh, wow. Respect. Guys, they're really trying to get after it. But the train tunnel, um, we were at the spot. There's You're in the middle of nowhere. It's super cold. I had to shit my pants. You're in this foreign country. <laughs> You're eating a lot of wild food, and uh, I go in the tunnel, and Cole sees me go, and I think I even told him I had to go take go to the bathroom. So I go in there and spackle the wall up of the tunnel, <laughs> <laughs> and then a train comes, and Cole didn't know how far the other side was or didn't see me come out and straight up thought that I like got murked in there, got just hit by the train, and was all freaking out, and I had come out the other side. 
because he looked in there and I was like gone. He thought mm-hmm. I got hit by the train. I survived. I just spackled the wall up. Can we uh, sick spot? Can we quickly talk about uh, the shoot, <coughs> the shoot that I assisted you on with Breezy at Brighton High? We can. <laughs> oh, I love this. I love this. I needed a. Uh, I think I had another session to shoot, another crew to shoot. <laughs> it's double booked. He's double booked. I might have been out shooting Bodie earlier in the morning or something. I can't remember who it was. And uh, I was double booked, so I hit up T-Bird. And I was like, there's this dope session going on, but it's going to need a lot of work. He was kind of new to shooting photos. Yep, yep. And hungry. I was, hungry. He was hungry hippo. And I was just like, dog, you go there and stand in and shovel for me. Because if I didn't shovel for Breezy... And that's a bad move. But if I had a stand-in, that works. <laughs> and uh, so I was like, Bird, you can shoot it all you want, do what you want, and uh, you just got to show up. And I think it happened to be one of those, like, 40 pickup truck days. Oh, it was a it, big Do you have a bobcat? Uh, I you couldn't get the bobcat back to well, the school. He didn't want to drive it on the track and field track. Oh, the field track, track and field, yeah. Breezy's a, a really respectful dude. He was like, I'm not going to rip it up, you know. So we were shoveling it into his truck driving it unloading it i think it was like 39 truckloads of snow it was heavy and literally the final tap before the speed check <laughs> easton just comes walking out onto the field what's up dog <laughs> i was just like this motherfucker <laughs> but you know what you know what epic session it, it got me in with breezy for life right anytime after that breezy called he was like, yo, I want you to come shoot this. He knew he was, was really down funny. to put in the work. Yeah, I got yep. a couple other topics we got to cover here briefly because they're just too good to pass up. Uh, first one is, can you explain what a turkey trot is? We're <laughs> <laughs> talking about a turkey trot scenario. We're talking about a turkey trot scenario here. I was uh, supposed to go ride with him and Pat Moore. Were you up there? I, th- I was involved with the turkey trot somehow. I don't yeah. remember and uh, we're all supposed to meet, like, first chair. I think it was a powder day. I don't even know. And I'm notoriously late. Yes. Everyone knows this. You are? Never. <laughs> and so the first time this happened, I be- I think I got up there all late or whatever, and everyone's giving me shit. And I was like, dude, the turkey trot was coming by my house. And everyone <laughs> thought I was lying. And uh, it this turkey trot is a marathon in Cottonwood Heights. <laughs> That happens to go through my house or past my street, and when that happens, they block off the road like police, and you can't get your car out. You're you're stuck. If you pull your car out, the cops are gonna shut you down. So everyone thought I was lying. So a year later, I filmed the turkey trot and sent it to all you guys <laughs> to prove that this thing existed. And it, it, actually, I can confirm that you know two, moved year, there. two years later, I moved there and the turkey trot came right by my house. I was also told that you were afraid to pull out of your driveway because, quote unquote, you're afraid of mob mentality. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but that People sounds just great. Like start pounding on your car. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? Those Mormons get restless. Yeah. <laughs> so. You mess up their crew, like their family events, things oh, yeah. get gnarly. Everyone yeah. knows that. The other thing too is just to, to forward that situation is that Buds would is like you said notoriously late. So anytime he's late, he's like oh, what do we got a fucking turkey trot scenario on our hands here? <laughs> and it still it comes up all the time too. Like people that that weren't there, people that don't know about it. I even get DM sometimes. It's a classic turkey trot scenario. That's so good. Yeah, anytime I'd be late for a session, it was a turkey trot scenario. And another thing, another topic here, I think that would be good to get into is when you think about Tech Nine spots, they're very infamous as far as like they're by railroad tracks. <laughs> There's maybe some graffiti involved. I'm just curious as the perfect recipe for what a Tech Nine spot you guys are looking for when you're doing a perim, when you're looking for the spot. 
Can you break down the criteria for us? I mean, railroad spots always have either a closeout or a nice rail up to the top of the train tunnel, like that that photo of Dylan up there, and uh, guaranteed to have graffiti, without a doubt. Another recipe is an abandoned building. Okay, abandoned building. You go to the bando. The bando, okay. <laughs> the bando's going to deliver every time. You can always figure out a wall ride by some graffiti or go off the roof, whatever it takes. The bando's deliver. When we hit up to uh, Detroit, bando's everywhere. So many spots. But, yeah, that's basically the recipe, a little graffiti. And even if there isn't graffiti, you guys might have Then we your might own. get someone to put. Well, we'd get to the point where we'd go international and people would, like, go there before us and throw up burners. Remember in Estonia, they went to that tunnel, and were you still there when that happened? I was. Yeah, they went and threw up graffiti. The news, local news showed up and shit. And, uh, yeah, we almost, I guess we're infamous for that. Okay, and then also, uh, what what does it take? Because you're the, usually uh, controlling the ox court when we're in the van. Young uh, ox court. Young ox court. And you got you go through a beautiful plethora of genres can you like you i would say you're the best trip dj i appreciate that and and uh can you just walk us through if somebody's on a trip and and they're the dj what's the what's the recipe i think the recipe is to mix it up you know i'd go on trips with Bodie and des desiree i'd be told to dj but the one rule was no rap music Oof. Oof. yikes That's tough Yikes. Throw on an emo set for those guys. They're just so happy. <laughs> <laughs> you go on a trip with other people, though. You just got to keep be mindful of who's in the van. Know your audience. Know yeah, your you got to know your audience and deliver. And I, I always like all sorts of genres, of genres of music. People always think it's rap or nothing, but I like everything. So that's just know your audience. All right, buds. Uh, let's get into some hot takes now. Hot takes is presented by Oakley. Goggles, and they also make helmets. I've recently been wearing a Domer a helmet. I've been ro- rocking the Oakley uh, Mod 5. Really enjoy it, um, and it protects the dome. So that being said, I think we should get into the hot takes presented by Oakley. Now, first things first, we're going to start with the MJ and or goat, both male and female snowboarding. Who you got? Heavy. You know, I have a new goat. Who's that? Jeremy Jones. Woo! Jibber. There it is. Seeing him... Out on this last trip, just still doing this at 47. I mean, how can you not give this guy some props as the uh, one of the best to ever do it? Yep. Going through what he went through and doing what he's doing, he is my new goat. I do want to say uh, I think Sage is a goat in the making. Mm, okay. I like Love that it. take. Yep. In the making. G-I-M, goat in making. We'll see if he uh, ends up there. Got it. But he's on his way. Female, uh, Jess Kamara. Solid answer. She's just the best. Yep. Okay. Uh, and then let's get into goat of photography. Oh, snap, dude. I know. This, this is a tough one. Cause <clears> you're gonna, you might hurt some feelings here, too. You might hurt some feelings. Dude. You can't dodge this one. There's no dodging. You have to give us some. Holy Gagnon. Woo! He's my goat, too. He's just out there still stacking, getting the best photos with the best people. And Put him in a heli. Put him in the streets. Yeah, he's doing this. I mean, Andy Wright can handle both as well. Yeah. But he put his hat in for retirement, you know. Oli's still out there going. Okay, who's the most underrated? Photographer? Both photographer and border. Border. Uh, I might go, it's so hard on the underrated one, man. That's tough. I might go like the Mindix. Oh, yeah. Good answer. Those guys are so dope. And, I mean, they get, you know, they get hooked up. They're sponsored and everything, but they could be getting more, you know. Yeah, love it. And the photographer? I might go germ worldwide on him. Oh, that is a good answer. He's not germ, even a photographer. <laughs> he's, in, he's just a 
media machine. Yeah, he's just a he natch. He does it all. He's media the juggernaut, yeah. if you will. He's incredible. Now, who's the best photographer? is what I'm curious about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah, nobody does. <laughs> nobody does. Okay. Uh, lastly, we got... Actually, we'll, we'll hit a couple more. Uh, if you go heliboarding with three people in the world stacked up in the heli, who you got? I got an answer for this. Yeah. I would sit down with Jules. Yep. Find out who the Patreon people are that are the most active. It's Woo! not about money. It's not about money. It's just the most active. Loyalty. Because to me, going hellion. I mean, we had someone in here the other day that talked about how the, uh, I mean, this will be out before mine. Chad talked about how, like, don't go to the Yellowstone Club till you're older. Dude, go hellion. That's going to ruin it more than the, it's going to be better than the Yellowstone Club any day. You can have your warming hut, but getting like fresh places that no one's ever shredded you, the only people there, to watch people experience that for the first time, that would be dope. So I would like to uh, fill it with Patreon people, and I'll shoot them. Wow, buds. What a great That's answer. An incredible answer. Shout out to our Patreon members. They keep this, they keep this gravy train rolling. Um, okay, then we're going we're gonna to talk, uh, talk beaver slap here. What's your take? You know, uh, I... Not a heavy beaver slapper. Okay. I mean, that's, I know it upsets the people that are rocking the, uh, that are doing the lift line work. I mean, I've definitely done it, but uh, I don't know if that I avidly do it. Okay. Lastly, worst trend. You know, worst trend. Um, my buddy Travis Wood threw one on me that technology has been the worst trend for snowboarding um, because of what it's done to photography. But I also feel like it's been the best trend because you can't hide from change. So that's kind of a flip-flop uh, answer. but It's introspective. you got to think yeah. about it. Yeah. You, if, you're, if you hide from the change, you're going to be a dinosaur, and you're not going to evolve with it. But it has had its moments of what it's done for photography and media and all that, but we're going to recover from it either way. Freaking great answer, buts. Okay, and, you know, we're going, we're going to keep going because we got to talk about that, what we're, we're doing right now, the bomb hole. That's, that's the, the, the most latest chapter in the, in the biography of Buds. You I, know, yeah, photography started to get to a point where it was started to, like, taper off almost the, the fi financial aspect of it, I would say. I mean, there are still obviously good gigs and people making good money, but the writing was kind of on the wall. Magazines were disappearing so it's such rad timing. Um, you were going to do a podcast either way. So I have to say thank you for including me on it as the guy that you chose because I think we uh, go together pretty well because we're so different-minded, I guess. And I think that works. And if each of us tried to do it alone, I don't know if it would have worked the same way. I have no idea. Maybe we, we don't know, but uh, I don't, I don't think, think so. So, so yeah, it's very uh, – when we started it, you know, we were on that trip throwing down names and talking about it and everyone else on the trip was just listening to us talk shit in the van and they were like, yeah, you guys would be great. But who knows if they even really listened to us. But <laughs> we uh, came home and, you know, you were in a place where I think you needed something new. I definitely was getting a little bit stagnant maybe. And uh, we just made that commitment that no matter what, we were going to go hard. And even if people didn't listen, we were going to still just put out episode after episode. At least, what do we say, like at least 10 20, or something? 25. Or 25, is that what yeah, we said? that was the number. Like no matter what, we were going to put out 25. And even if people didn't didn't follow us or didn't do anything, but we had that captive audience with COVID, and I think that really helped us. And it's been uh, pretty damn fun, I got to say. Like to go from your garage to this office. 
I remember that it was like Grenier put together a super cut. It was like Bud's best hits from the trip. It was unbelievable. It was like a one minute Instagram reels or whatever. I probably watched it like nine times. I was laughing so fucking <laughs> The one from hard. our Finland trip. Uh, it was unbelievable where you steamed up the lens and yeah. you're in the kitchen. Yeah, Chris was already talking about a podcast then. Like that was a year before even. Yeah. I mean, when you started Board Slides and Banter, you were kind of just already always headed that way. And I always in my mind like thought it would be rad to, I don't know, do something with the mic mm-hmm. and YouTube or something. I don't know. So it was kind of cool. <laughs> I remember you guys, one of you, one of you two hit me up. You called me and you're like, Yes, bomb hole, one word or two. <laughs> and I was like, I actually have no fucking idea. <laughs> like, I don't really know. It's not really a word. But it's, two it's words. absolutely incredible, like, what you guys have done here, like, for the snowboarding community as a whole. it's yeah, We it, just have our head down, too. We don't even often realize it. Just pump out episodes and yeah, as an As one. an outsider, it's, like, the, the greatest new addition to snowboarding in decades. That's awesome. Thank yeah, you, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, thank it's, you. it's an honor to, to sit here. You know? Thank you. And so the, other, the other thing going back to just this, the start, the in, inception of the podcast, the thing that's cool is like we would be driving around in the van and like the banter, like in between spots where we're, we're driving, we're listening to rap. Buds is like, app, close app, Betty rail. <laughs> like, and it's like, we're just like fucking talking about just mundane, stupid shit and laughing our asses off. And it's always been this like, the the like this weird intuition where it's like buds is buds is the guy he's the guy you know and it's so it's been so fun buds it's been so fun doing i was stoked man if i wasn't the guy i'd be sad because this is so much fun yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh cool well, how, what about just speaking on bomb hole stuff real quick how do you feel about like it seems like the like the community aspect of it dude the community aspect is so dope and the people I, a lot of people reach me on dm and it's so cool talking to them and helping people through problems if need be, or just hearing good things. And it's just the community is really the best part and for me. Another thing too, to think about why, why you, the, the recipe that makes you the guy too is, is at the end of the day, we have fun, we laugh, we're dipshits, but then also conversation comes up and it's hard times and you've lived hard times Yeah, and it takes somebody that's lived hard times to be able to relate and, true, and huh? you're a people person. And it's like that this whole story that you just fucking told of all these, the story of buds of all these fucking 10 lifetimes of wild experiences that you've experienced all like culminate into you sitting in that chair and being able to relate to people that are our guests. And it's beautiful. Love that. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely awesome. All right. We are, uh, we're rounding the corner. Let's, uh, let's bring her home strong boys. Let's finish, finish her off. Nice. Let's do that. And, uh, you know, one of the last things we like to do is ask, our guest about their setup. What snowboard setup are you riding, but Yes, dog. I got this uh, new kind of exciting thing going on. What do we I, got going on? I am a, uh, what, what's it called? A uh, Am- Ambassador? Ambassador. Thank you for the <laughs> word. <laughs> you sure are. You sure are an ambassador. I'm a uh, union and spring break ambassador. And uh, right here behind me, I have the Team Force Union Bindings on this... Uh, Mini Tree Hunter, man, these boards are so sick on the powder and uh, so stoked on the C3 family for involving me on their program. Blue and I go way back, as he said in his episode, and uh, it's just dope. Corey Smith, actually, who started Spring Break, used to be a Tech 9 rider. What are we talking, like, stance with angles? 21 and a half inch stance. Um, Positive 
18 in the front, negative six in the back. I like that. I'm surprised. Uh, what about edges? You wax that thing up? You, you, you fuck with the edges? I don't you, do any detail. Right out of the, right Dude, out I'm the not hitting the steel. I'm too old for the steel. I Got used it. to enjoy the lumber, as we talked yeah. about. More of a lumber guy. <laughs> More of a lumber lumber guy. But the steel, uh, once you get over 40, that's like that's kind of a, mm-hmm. one of those things maybe to avoid unless you're Jeremy hey, Jones. Talk about what's up with spring break because it seems like a spring really break. Spring break is pretty dope. Uh, Corey Smith, who used to ride for Tech Nine, the artist, has uh, started this brand, and they welcomed it into the C3 family, which is dope. If you go on Capita's website, they have the spring break line, and uh, it's pretty sick. It's uh, these powder shapes that are so fun to ride. They also actually they have some boards that aren't just the powder shapes, but all the shapes are really sick, and uh, it's so much fun in the pow. It's insane, and they have that little slush slasher, too. I don't know if you've seen that, bad boy. It's, in, it's so much fun in all conditions. Those boards are like pieces of art as much as they are like utilitarian surfboards. Yeah. I mean, yeah, dude, the wild. wood top sheet on this thing. Dude, everything out of the mothership, I haven't for years, I don't know why, I never rode one. And I'm realizing the stuff out of the mothership is just, and it, it makes sense, Blue's attention to detail is just next level. And you really see it just in, even in the sidewalls, like other people just have these flat, there's a like, just have like a little round bevel to them. And everything is just all detail orientated and made with perfection, also very light. I noticed as well. The boards are very light, and they ride so sick. We also got to bring up for all the aspiring photographers. They want to know your camera setup. What are you running and gunning with, buds? You know, it's funny. For the first half of my photo career, I shot all Canon, and uh, was super hyped on it. And when I got to the point where I'd shot it for a decade, I was just like, "Fuck! I need. I want to get something new, and I want it to feel new." So I switched to Nikon. So I've shot both. I mean, a lot. some people are on Sony nowadays, but I'm on all Nikon. I use Ellen Chrome flashes. Um, a bit back in the day, I would shoot a lot with Hasselblad on film, and, man, those things, you just feel like you're making art when you use them. What's crazy, too, is I bought that one behind T-Bird for, I don't even know, like 500 bucks, and they stopped making them, right? They're these Russian-made or German-made cameras there's a couple like knockoffs that are russian made i don't know why i said russian made but they're german made and uh now they're like six grand on the weather crazy holy smokes yeah they're the most expensive camera in this room yeah it really is it's nuts i saw that the other day and i was just tripping because they don't make them anymore they stopped making so it's a limited limited number of them out there and some people i guess don't treat them well and so there's less and less and less but uh they really like to shoot an art and playing around with film if you ever want to mess with film and you can get your hands on one of those, man. I, I highly advise it. And there's cheaper versions, too. You don't have to go Hasselblad. Any medium format's dope. But uh, Ellen Chrome flashes will change your life. There's a new brand out called Godox that is a bit cheaper, maybe. So maybe more attainable if you're looking for a good flash kit. But you definitely need something you can have off camera. It'll really step your game up. Well said. Um, and, you know, we got to ask before we wrap this thing up. Well, first of all, what's next? What's next? Um, oh, I did start a website where I sell photo prints. Yep, let's talk about that. It's uh, e-stonephoto.com, and uh, I put my prints on there, and I've been so hyped on the support that people have bought prints. Definitely sold way more than I anticipated. And uh, that being said, I do want to say that it helps so much when you support photographers like Blotto's phone book, um mike yoshida like i mentioned earlier puts out a cool little zine anything you see photographers do i mean it's tough equipment's expensive so any support you can offer 
is going to keep all the photographers out in the field shooting more, being able to up the equipment and get new equipment as they need it. And it's just going to keep the imagery coming. So support these projects when you can because it, it goes a long way. And also, Eastone has two decades of iconic imagery that you can print out, you, that's, you can hang on your wall, and that's important in the digital era. And so make sure you support. What's the website, buds? It's uh, www.e-stonephoto.com. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Paul will pop it on the screen. And, uh, yeah, check it out. I'll be uploading more more prints as we go and more more images. But right now there's like 60 up there or something. Killer. And lastly, uh, you got any thank yous? Thank yous, man. There's so many, too many to mention, I would imagine. But uh, I should mention my original Tech 9 partners, which was J3 and my stepbrother, Mark Girardi, um, as well as my father. You know, it wouldn't have happened without him, even though we don't talk now and all that. But uh, also, like, Blotto and uh, Cole Taylor, obviously, was a partner. Blue was a team manager for a while. All the team riders. Um, much respect to uh, C3 for supporting me now that really, really hyped on that. Um, and also just Angie for always being there. Let's give Angie a big old air horn. And every rider that's been in front of my camera obviously could not do it without them. And you guys, of course. Got to thank you guys. Thank you, buds. Really appreciate that. Bird, appreciate you. Well, especially you, Chris, because I wouldn't be sitting in this chair if you hadn't made this happen. So, Because I don't think, uh, I mean, your personality is what it takes to push this ship moving forward. I don't know on my own because you're, you're just such a machine. So much respect. I don't think I'd be sitting here without you. So thank, many thank yous. Thank you so much, buds. And thank you for all the hard work you poured into making this podcast a reality and, and how much you care about all of our listeners and Everything that you do, it's I could talk for hours about it. And so thank you for being and thank you for being a good friend, dude. Thank you, Doug. And Bird, thanks for coming, co-hosting. And I always gotta say, everybody that tunes in, listens, watches on YouTube, supports the Patreon, all that stuff, all of our sponsors, thank you guys so much. We appreciate you. Over and out from the bomb hole.